Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. One day, a professional killer went home to visit his family and found his brother murdered. Now, who killed him? I don't know nothing. And listen, the only reason I came back to this crap house was to find out who did it. And I'm not leaving till I do. Michael Caine is Carter, a man with unbridled hate. Do you want to be dead, Albert? For Christ's sake! You knew what I'd do, didn't you, Albert? Listen, didn't kill him! I loved it! When a professional killer hates, he turns animal. And there becomes but one law in the underworld jungle. Get Carter. Get Carter. Before Carter gets you. Don't let us interrupt you. Now, don't you think you ought to get dressed first? Come on, Jack, put it away. You know you won't use it. <laughs> the gun he needs. <laughs> Out. Carter, the heated killer, the cool lover. Decisive action. I've come for you, Margaret. Take your clothes off. Few words. Decisive action. <laughs> Hate drives the hunter. No, no! Fear pursues the hunted. They have killed me! They killed my brother! He's dead! Hey! Carter, spreading terror with an uncontrolled trigger. Carter was a killer by profession. Now he is a killer by instinct. Michael Caine is Carter. Get Carter before Carter gets you. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Rob St. Mary is currently flying blind on a rocket cycle. Flying blind on a rocket cycle? Instead with me this week is the lovely and talented Maitland McDonough. Always a pleasure to be here. Also with us this week is the lovely and talented Eric Zaldivar. Pleasure to be here as well. This week we are talking about the 1971 film Get Carter from director Mike Hodges, who also wrote the script. It's an adaptation of Ted Lewis's book Jack's Return Home. It's also one of three interpretations of the same source material. The film stars Michael Caine as Jack Carter, a tough who grew up in Newcastle and comes back to his home from London after his brother's untimely death. There he uncovers a microcosm of corruption, which he dismantles piece by piece in order to avenge his brother. Maitland, when was the first time you saw Get Carter, and what did you think? I first saw Get Carter maybe 10 years ago, DVD, and it was part of a, a time when I was looking at a lot of English gangster and criminal movies from the 70s, and I remember looking at it and thinking, holy fucking whatever, this movie is amazing. It's so tough, so lean, so relentless, and so incredibly bleak. 
that it was really astonishing to me. It, it, it lo- I looked at it and thought, this is a film that looks forward to films that were going to be made 30 years later and that were, frankly, no tougher, no meaner, and more astonishing. Thank God Maitland didn't say she saw it in some grimy theater in the early 70s because I was not going to top that. I, too, saw it on DVD. About, not about the same time she did, but maybe five years after that. The, the look of it is mean and nasty, all those uh, Scunthorpe or Newcastle skies. Uh, it's just, it's a really kind of depresso-looking kind of film. And one of the things that really struck me about it is that my family's English, but my family is from the South, which is the nice part of England. But growing up, I always kind of heard about how rough things were up north and, you know, what hard men they were up there. And this movie completely embodied everything that I had ever heard about the North. Without a doubt, it's the avenging angel motif. Uh, he comes into town with a certain character. Archetype comes into town, and that character doesn't change throughout the entire movie at all. He just kind of remains the same. He changes the people around him, uh, for better or for worse. There's even whole sequences that you can, uh, if anybody remembers the scene where Carter is in on the boat that's docking and... He meets up with his uh, gangster pals from uh, London, and there's a bit of a shootout between them. That's all very kind of Sergio Leone, as you mentioned earlier. I mean, it's a hard film to follow, especially going into it. Like, let's say you hadn't read the book, or let's say you didn't even know what the synopsis was, or just the general idea of it. It's hard to even grasp that he's a gangster up until maybe half an hour into the movie. The two uh, brothers at the beginning, his employers, uh, you know, they're unpleasant characters and what have you, but... uh, you don't really get a sense until maybe about half an hour into it where it's like, okay, you can more or less figure this guy's kind of a, a villainous character, a criminal character of some sort, an underground character. And uh, But, uh, yeah, then you've got to keep up with names, all these names and all these people that are off screen whenever they have a long dialogue session. Uh, it's, it's kind of a tough film to keep up with, but uh, once it clicks with you, it's really something else. One of the things that I think is kind of fantastic about Get Carter is precisely that he's a bad man and he admits it relatively early on you know he says he's a villain i I think it's pretty clear that the guys he works for in london are based on the cray brothers and they were very bad men frankly and yet he still has a, a certain code of something it's really not a code of honor it's just a a code of personal behavior that makes him feel like okay, whatever he's doing, whatever bad things he's involved in, he's not putting young girls into porno movies. So somehow he's a little bit better than the people he's running up against in Newcastle. And I think the more times you see Get Carter, the more apparent it becomes that his whole sense of himself is really kind of illusory. He really isn't any better than they are, frankly. If there's anything that separates him from everybody else, it's that he has that kind of sociopathic disconnect from the rest of the world. He doesn't have that now it's personal moment. He doesn't have that now I have to go avenge my brother's death after you push the hero so far and then he has that breaking point. He doesn't have the moment where the wife dies. He doesn't have the moment where the dog dies. He doesn't have that moment where his brother dies. This is not a moment of revelation where he has to go. It just feels like an obligation more than anything. He doesn't seem to be doing it for anybody, maybe not even himself, just maybe that it's the expected thing to do. He doesn't have that idea of how to interact with people 
when it comes to things, his answer is always money. He is always trying to buy people off or pension them off, as he says. Money is his answer to everything. Money is the only thing he seems to understand. And he's doing this to everybody, even his allies, even the woman who runs the B&B, Las Vegas, the guy Keith, who used to work with Brother Frank. Everybody calls him a bastard, and he is a bastard. And I love that he's a bastard. He's this perfect anti-hero. He really doesn't have any redeeming qualities. He doesn't right wrongs for the right reasons. But honestly, when I look at him, I see a shark. I mean, he really does have those dead shark eyes. And he just cuts through the water because that's what he does and devours things in front of him because that's what he does. And there is something incredibly remorseless and inhuman about him. And that's an astonishing kind of character to find in a movie in 1971. And Michael Caine, he doesn't get any better than he does in this role. He is pitch perfect. The little things that he does with those dead eyes, with that fastidious nature, the whole thing at the beginning where he's polishing the spoon and putting in the eye drops, just those little things that he's doing... He knows how to draw every eye to him, and I love that he's on screen, that he's on screen almost every moment of this film. There's no POV shots from him, which is interesting. We're always kept on the outside. It's not necessarily easy for us to identify with Carter, even though he's the person that we see all through this film. And yet what's also fascinating is that the first time we see him on the train... The novel he's reading is Farewell, My Lovely, which is a completely different conception of the the lone wolf who's out to right the wrongs of the world. It's a much more romanticized, much more classical kind of notion of the guy who is a bad man, but there are far worse men than him in the world, so he's actually not so bad. To me, it's fascinating that that's what he's reading. That whole idea of the Chandler the Philip Marlowe knight errant out there protecting the world, being the one bastion of light in a sea of darkness. That is not Carter. That is not who Jack Carter is. And Eric, I love that you mentioned how dark the film is, how overcast it is, how grimy the world is that he's in. Jack Carter is right there with him. He stands out a little bit because of the cut of his suit his fastidious nature, that he's got this London accent, but he does not necessarily feel like he's above the rest of the world. He's coming in as one of these people. Well, what's hugely significant is that, you know, in Chandler's novels, you have the embodiment of the the man who walks these mean streets but is not himself mean. Carter is mean. Oh, yeah. And no ways about it. Mm-hmm. There is an animalistic thing about him. You know, even in his performance, in Kane's performance particularly, he's, he kind of snarls when he says some lines, particularly when he's angry at somebody or he's rousting somebody. And, uh, his teeth are bared, and uh, it really is when he gets aggressive, it's uh, it's scary. Uh, for as ruthless as Carter is, as for as ruthless as Kane is as Carter in the film, uh, he's even more nasty in the book. The scene in the film where he finally realizes what Doreen, his, uh, his uh, niece slash possible daughter, had been up to and uh, where everything is leading up to, she was in the pornographic film. He starts crying. It's almost uh, it's almost Mike Hodges of the filmmakers trying to humanize him a little bit so that he's not a complete stone to the audience so that they can relate in some way. Um, there's also a moment where 
he is paying his his um, niece off with money, but at the same time he's very nice to her and he's very he's very loving to her. Uh, gives her some advice, probably superficial, but it's advice nonetheless. In the book, there's none of that. He doesn't care about anything, and as you said, he might not even care about himself or his family duties. It's just something he feels like he needs to do. When he sees the porn, the, the porn film, he doesn't care. I mean, he does care. I'm sorry. He gets angry. He doesn't cry. There's no moment of vulnerability in that way. Uh, and with the scene with his... Um, and I'm sorry, the passage in the book concerning the last time he sees his niece, he, he beats her up for information because she knows something and he knows that she's holding out on him. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it, there's, there's no moment of tenderness at all with any other character in the film. And, and that there is in the film, I'm sorry. Something else that's not really showcased in the movie is that all the people he's, he's beating up or, or, or murdering, uh, most of them are his childhood friends. The book goes a lot into a certain flashbacks with his brother and, and um, a character called Albert Swift, who's in the movie. He stabs him several times. These are, these are people that he are his uh, schoolyard chums, that he's coming back after many years. Uh, and he's just laying these people to waste. It's really kind of mean and nasty and, and absolutely frightening. Those are probably the subtle differences between the book and the movie. The movie and the book are very close together in that way. And in, in, in story-wise, and where the action takes place, and all that. I did want to ask about one thing when it comes to the film versus the book. One of the things that I like about the film, per what Maitland was saying, is that the criminals at the beginning, these two brothers who are kind of based upon the Cray brothers, we have Michael Caine as Jack Carter, who is definitely going out with one of the brothers' wives, played by Britt Eklund, who plays the character Anna who I believe is called Audrey in the book. It's a great dangerous situation for him to be in. He's disobeying these guys by going up to Newcastle, by mucking about, and they tell him we're tied to this Newcastle mob. And the phone calls that he has back to Anna are this kind of only real tenderness that we get from the character. We don't get that with anybody else, not even his niece slash daughter. And we get these great phone calls of him calling back to Anna, and they're almost kind of pornographic, especially the phone sex uh, call, which is probably one of my favorite scenes in the book, or sorry, in the movie. But one of the things I wanted to ask is, does he have those same kind of phone calls, that phone sex scene, particularly with Anna in the book, like he has in the film? I don't recall the details if there is a sex, not a sex scene, but a, a phone sex uh, passage in the book as there is in the film, which incidentally, I think it was um, Mark Carmode, uh, the UK film critic, who claimed, I'm not 100% sure on that, but it's, it's his understanding that that's probably the first time phone sex has ever been shot in a film, period. Now, maybe not shot, but released and what have you. Uh, the first instance of a, of a phone sex uh, scene. There is obviously a major relationship between him and Audrey. It's Anna in the film, uh, who is uh, the wife of one of the main Fletcher brothers. The relationship is there, and it comes to a head as it does in the movie. Um, the sex scene on the phone, or the phone sex, or them getting intimate on the phone, I, you know, to be honest, I do not remember. I want to say no, because it's something that I probably would have remembered. I also remember it from the... And yet it's such an incredibly striking scene in the film 
not so much because it shows a a more tender or more attentive or more sexually loving side of Carter, but because in the film, I, I can't help but feel that that entire scene is done for the benefit of the landlady and making her uncomfortable. Yeah, he needs to sway her to his side because she has been kind of a pain, threatening that she's going to call the police because of all the people that are coming by, and he needs to get her on his side. And the best way to do that is by having sex with her. And that phone call is the entree into her bed. I'm flipping through the uh, novel here. I actually found one, because there's many phone calls that go between her, uh, Carter and Audrey. And he just says some crass things to her. There's nothing, uh, they're not there trying to get intimate with each other. Uh, her husband's in the same room. She's pretending to talk to uh, a friend of hers. And uh, just before she hangs up, he says, uh, you have lovely tits. And she just hangs up. Um, so that's as, as, uh, as far as it gets, I think. The more I think about it, the more I think of Get Carter as being this kind of modern-day spaghetti western. When I think about how... In Fistful of Dollars, uh, Clint Eastwood has the two allies, the barman and the coffin maker. And in this, in Get Carter, we have the kind of direct relationship that we have of Jack Carter and, again, a barman with Keith. And then also with the landlady. And he's taking advantage of both. He allows Keith to get beat up. He is taking advantage of the landlady, but there's a really good interplay between these characters, especially when the cremains show up of his brother and she kids saying, you know, is he going to be spending the night then and having a joke at the box's expense, as it were. You're doing my job for me here, doing all these spaghetti Western analogies. I think the Western thing comes up even more and is really at the fore when Carter is trying to break into the house of the main bad guy or who ends up being the main bad guy or one of the main bad guys because nobody really is very good. So we have Carter coming to town and he makes an ally with Keith who is, I always like that actor. He is best known to me as being one of the, the criminals in Krull. Anyway, he comes to town and makes a couple allies between Keith and the landlady, like I was saying, and then he begins his investigation. And one of the first people that he goes to see is Cyril Kinner after uh, an amazing scene at a racetrack where we uh, meet another one of our bad guys played by Ian Hendry. But he goes to see Cyril Kinner and... The break-in at the house is pretty amusing to me as far as him running through the woods and taking out the guy with the big uh, uh, branch from the tree. And then when he sneaks inside of the house, everything, uh, the whole Western thing is really brought to the fore for me as we have him in this close-up in front of this wallpaper where you have all of these Native Americans. So it's really like he is playing Cowboys and Indians where he's the cowboy and the bad guys are the Indians in this one. And it's kind of a a nice little moment. And if you don't catch it, you don't catch it. But it's just uh, really brings the whole idea of this being a a modern-day Western to the fore for me. It goes well with how tacky so much of the settings are that he goes into. I think the English term for that is tat. It's all tat, everything. From the, you know, the the uh, covers on the beds to the awful wallpaper, to, 
it's it's all so horrible and middle brow trying to be something better. It, it's a very very English thing, and it is horrifying. Yeah, that very much brings to mind Brumby and his house, where he really seems to be defined by his house, where corruption definitely has bought him his house. He seems to be the only one with a decent place, though he definitely is not a decent man, as we soon find out. One of the things I really like about Get Carter is how much it looks forward to David Peace's novels, the uh, Red Riding novels, which are set in a very similar milieu, but are astonishingly a hundred times more brutal about the north of England. It's interesting to me that two, three of the most violent films that were out around this time, Clockwork Orange, Get Carter, and then Straw Dogs, were all set in England. And specifically with Straw Dogs and Get Carter, that they're set in the north of England. You know, they're not in the big city. And I know it wasn't necessarily a British industrial town, but Straw Dogs was definitely a British town where this we have a, a lot of um, bad things going on behind the scenes and then eventually come to the forefront. Yeah, it's a creepy British, basically a, a, a farming town. But yeah, that incredible violence is lying right under the surface and it just takes a little poke of the stick to bring it out. And I like that we don't even necessarily see police very often in Get Carter. You just see them in one scene over at Cyril Kinnear's house. In most other films, you would get at least a cop, maybe a corrupt cop, albeit, at the very near beginning of the film. But there's no law necessarily to be had. No, yeah, the law doesn't seem to figure into it too much. Uh, There is... Carter does take damning evidence and sends it to Scotland Yard, if I'm not mistaken, at one point towards the end, right? He's sending it out of town. I I think it's very clear in this movie that the police either don't care or have been bought off or just feel like, oh, well, this is lads being lads. There's a, a, a real complicity on the part of the police in the kind of things that go on in this movie. I do want to shout out to John Osborne's performance as Cyril Kinnear. He plays it so well and just so serpentine. The way that he pitches his voice, the way that he is so genteel, such the master criminal, as it were, talking to Jack, talking around Jack when we have that poker scene at the beginning the line about him uh, talking to the one woman saying, you know, Glenda, you don't offer a man like Jack a drink in those piddling little glasses. Give him the bloody bottle. Which is also kind of a nice way to telegraph the whole idea of Frank's brother having a whole bottle of whiskey poured down his throat. There are so many times where we're being told things either via dialogue or via visuals. There's a great line in the audio commentary where Mike Hodges is talking about the opening scene, and we have Carter standing there in the apartment of his employers pulling the curtains, and Hodges is saying, yep, that's it, that's curtains for Carter, he's not going to survive. And apparently even the guy who ends up shooting him at the very end of the film is at the beginning of the film in the carriage of the train when he's going up to Newcastle, which is great that he's had that specter with him the entire time. 
you got there before I did. I was going to mention, yeah, the foreshadowing's heavy. That guy is right in front of him the entire train ride. And that's another one of those things where I didn't even notice that for the first maybe four times that I saw this movie. It took until I started reading a book about Kit Carter where I realized, oh, all right. It's a film that's very rewarding on on, on uh, multiple viewings. It's uh, and not in like a superficial way, like oh yeah, curtains for Carter and all that stuff. It's just like you pick up on little things here and there you don't even didn't understand or didn't hear the first time, or the circus second time, or the third time, or the fourth. You know, it's uh, it really rewards the viewer. It's funny that all three of us kind of saw it around the same time. I think Mike, you said you saw it a little bit before we did. Wasn't it rediscovered? Uh, tell me if I'm wrong. Wasn't it rediscovered here in America in 2000, somewhere around there, just before the obviously the, the remake with Sylvester Stallone? It was something that's just kind of new. Even in the UK, it wasn't appreciated up until much later. Well, I think part of that is because it, it didn't receive a major release in the U.S. I mean, it opened here, but and it was a Michael Caine movie, and he was an actor you know, people respected and were aware of. But I don't think it was ever treated as, as anything special, anything that got the kind of publicity push that many other movies got. Well, I was going to say also that it's kind of mind-blowing to me that John Osborne is in this movie. I mean, just because, you know, he's the author of Look Back in Anger. It's kind of astonishing to just see him playing a role as a nasty, crappy guy in a crime movie. Yeah, and I know that he had been an actor before, then he became a playwright, an author, but this was kind of his return to form. Man, was he good. He is so good in this. And I want to say that Hodges even brought him back in Flash Gordon. I want to say that he was a high priest on Arborea. I won't swear to it, though. I, I was born were on the planet of Arborea in Flash Gordon. That would be so fabulous. Uh, am I mistaken in thinking that he kind of hand, uh, does uh, devils in kitchen sink dramas and angry young men type of thing? Absolutely. Yeah. He, he really was the pioneer of that kind of writing. I mean, he was the, you know, the thin edge of the wedge at a whole new kind of English drama. Right. And I, and I, it's, it's funny, I didn't even think about it up until you just mentioned it, that, yeah, John Osborne's in the movie, and what's funny is that Ted Lewis, the author, started out doing uh, kitchen sink sort of things uh, as far as novels are concerned. In fact, uh, even when he became popular after Carter, he made one more called The Rabbit. But before that, he did uh, All the Way Home and All Through the Night, which is very much a uh, sort of working class uh, drama of sorts. I was aware of John Osborne. I just had forgotten completely that he plays uh, Kinnear, right? So, I, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure there's no connection whatsoever. I'm sure it's just a coincidence, but it is fascinating nonetheless. The author got started doing these things first before doing Get Carter or rather Jack's Return Home. That was his first major seller. We're going to take a break and play an interview with the director of Get Carter, Mike Hodges. I read that you were a certified chartered accountant at one point. I qualified when I was 22. And the reason I did it is I was an only child and my father was a commercial traveler. And he wanted me to have a profession. So uh, uh, I said, well, I really wanted to go to RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, to learn stagecraft. But they said, mm, they, did, they thought it was better I got a profession. So I said, which one? So they said, well, you're good at math, so why don't you become an accountant? So I said, okay, but when I do that, then I do what I want to do. So they didn't really believe me, um, but that's what happened. So I never practiced. I just qualified 
So that was your fallback? No, it wasn't my fallback. <laughs> I hated it. I was never going to fall back on a counter CM set. But it proved useful to me later on because I was, you know, I've always been good on budgets and um, and coming in on time and on, you know, under budget often. So, so uh, it, it has proved useful. Useful. So, how did you end up getting into show business? Well, after I did uh, uh, accountancy, so I was twenty-two. Then I had to do national service, uh, which was two years in those days for all men. Um, and it was deferred but because I was doing accountancy. So then I did two years in the Navy, and I was on a, a minesweeper. I could have got a commission being an accountant, but I didn't want to be an accountant, so I went on the lower deck. Uh, so I was able seaman Hodges for two years on a minesweeper, which was attached to the Fisher Protection Squadron. So I went all around England. Uh, all around the British Isles and up to the Arctic, up to Iceland, up to Norway. With the perversity of life, it's because I loved the sun. So they decided that that was my course for the next two years. So having done the done the uh, national service, I then came out and commercial television had just started up in this country. So I decided I'd try and get a job in that department. And I met somebody who told me I couldn't get a job at any of the companies uh, at all because I had no experience whatsoever. And I eventually got a menial job working with teleprompter. You know what a teleprompter is, presumably. So it's an electronic queuing device. And so I got this job, which I did for about two or three years. It allowed me time to write, and I got enough money to live on. I got, we got £10 a week, no overtime. But it was a great experience for me because it meant that I could, I'd work for the BBC, I'd work for all the commercial, uh, commercial television companies, work for film studios. So whilst the job itself was pretty uh, tedious, uh, I was able to observe what was going on. So I learned an unbelievable amount during that period of time. So that's how I started, you know. And of course, the other advantage of the job was that you met a lot of people. So... And you travelled up to the north of England to do television shows in studios up there, so you'd be in the train with the producers and the various people. So gradually, I, uh, you know, you, you acquired a, a group of friends, and one of them offered me a job writing, uh, write, a writing job, um, and I sort of gravitated through, through that way up to to eventually becoming a director. Was that? a fairly difficult path for somebody to take to get to a directorship at that point? Well, it was weird, actually. I mean, I was very lucky because when commercial television started here, uh, there, were nobody, there was nobody experienced in, in, in that form of television, which was totally different to what the BBC were doing. I don't mean in terms of content and everything, but it, we had you know, commercial television obviously is sustained by commercial breaks. So it was a kind of specialized... Uh, form of television which needed different kinds of directors really um, and producers so a lot of the a lot of the people who took these roles came from from countries which had commercial television like Canada in particular Canada um, and there was one uh, guy there called Lloyd Shirley who became uh, who came over with, uh, with, with among many other you know, directors and he became a producer and he took a shine to me, so he he was the guy who offered me the first writing job. And then his own career progressed through to current affairs, so I 
became a producer of a, 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 a semi-religious program for young people. Um, and then I went on to World in Action, which was the program that I told you about a minute ago, which was a kind of, it was, a, it was like a 60 minutes program, but it was, this one was only 30 minutes, um, which meant that I went to America for the first time. I went to Vietnam. I went to Detroit, as I told you. Yeah, I, when I finished the Lloyd had then become head of the uh, arts uh, section of the same television company. So he asked me to if I wanted to produce an arts program, which was called Tempo. And Tempo had been started by the, the, uh, um, a, a theatre critic called Kenneth Tynan, who uh, eventually became the literally uh, director of the National Theatre, which had, uh, which had started. Tynan had started this program, and it had a lot of money to begin with, but by this time it had been relegated to an early afternoon slot on a Sunday and had a mere £2,000 to, to, as the budget. Uh, but I took it on because I, I really was interested in, in doing programs on, 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 all, on all forms of art. Um, and I've been shooting on 16mm film for some years now while I was on World in Action. So I took the job on, and we then did a whole series of profiles of people like Harold Pinto, Jacques Tati, uh, Jean-Luc Gazard, um, the range of people that we did over the next two years, and programs about them were was extensive, and they were all pretty well on 16mm film. So then Lloyd moved on. He became head of drama. So as you can see, I'm sort of going in his wake, actually. But I convinced him that in those days they were to sell all, do all their drama on video, which was very cumbersome. But initially, when I started, most television was live and I was a teleprompter operator. But by now, they had video. But the editing process was complicated and slow. And it, it wasn't such an easily sellable commodity uh, as being on film. So I talked I talked Lloyd into starting to do dramas specifically on 16 millimeter film, um, and he I, he commissioned me to write the first one, which is called Suspect, on 16 millimeter, 16 millimeter, which I wrote and directed and produced, which cost him a magnificent sum of twelve thousand pounds. So these were 90 minute films, and then that was successful. So then I did the second one, which was called Rumor. And Rumour was, uh, again, uh, uh, successful. And as uh, suspect, the first one that I did was a very much a kind of uh, Shabrolish murder story set in the countryside. And the second one was really much more influenced by the French new wave of Godard and, and Truffaut. Um, as much, you know, I was doing a lot of flashbacks and flash forwards and things like that. But it was about a, a, a gossip columnist in, uh, uh, who was a, you know, a cheat and a liar. And uh, it, it, it was kind of sweet smell of success in some ways. It was a similar sort of arena. This was seen by Michael Klinger, who had the rights to Jack's Return Home. And I was offered uh, to, to write and direct Get Carter. So my transition really was, was you know, progressed quite evenly, actually, um, and quite simply. I was, I was lucky. Now, when you were doing uh, some of these shows about uh, Godard and um, some of the other entertainers, Tati and those, was that kind of your first exposure, or were you already immersed in that kind of cinema? 
I'd loved cinema since I was in, in, an accountant. I mean, in, in the, in the, I, I was brought up in a small country town called Salisbury. It's famous for its cathedral. It's a medieval town. There were three cinemas there in the 50s. It was the Regal, the ABC, and the Gaumont. And the Gaumont had a suit of armor in the entrance hall, I remember. Anyway, it was a great period of, of cinema, both in America and, and in the UK. Um, in America, you, you had people like Billy Wilder, you know, making a film every year, virtually. And here we had Powell and Pressburger and Lean. And so it was a great era of, 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 of cinema, in my opinion, probably the greatest ever. You didn't get any, in this country town, you didn't get any foreign films. There was one, I remember, the Kakianis film, A Girl in Black. It was the only foreign film I ever remember happening or reaching the cinema. So, so I was already, you know, well and truly indoctrinated with, 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 uh, with films. And, uh, and I was, there was a magazine called Pit, The Picture Guy, which is a very, filled with a sort of, pin-up girls and various other things, but they had some very good critics, so I was well-guided, actually, into what I saw. I saw all about Eve and, you know, Ace in the Hole and a whole range of great films, and, of course, there was a, it was a great era of, of Americans, particularly American cinema, I think, with the uh, with Guzan and, uh, you know, all, all those great... And with Brando and all those extraordinary films that were coming out in, the, in those days. So already I was imbued with that. And then when I came to London after my two years in the Navy, um, I then began to you know, get to see foreign films, like the whole of the new, new wave, as I said. And then there was Bergman, there was Fellini, there was you know, the, the, the great tradition of European cinema as opposed to British cinema uh, I was opened up to. So yes, I was already uh, you know, imbued with with the culture of cinema, I have to say that I wasn't really, I wasn't really up to speed in terms of art or painting or theatre or but cinema, because it was easily accessible um, for for me. Uh, I was pretty, you know, I was pretty well informed. I know you wrote Rumor and Suspect. Had you done writing for uh, any of the programs that you worked on before that? Well, with the, all the, the the world in action and the various other programs, you you wrote the scripts for for those you, together with your researchers usually. So yes, one, but there wasn't cause it wasn't drama. They were all factual programs in the main. So it wasn't that kind of writing. But during the period when I was a telephone for operator, I wrote a. Uh, I, I, again, I was on the train going up to to Manchester, which is in the north of England, and. The head of the drama department, which is another Canadian, his name is Sidney Newman, he was very famous. He went on and took over the BBC's drama department as well. And I knew he was looking for a, a script on euthanasia. So I wrote uh, in my own time, while I was an opera, tem- while I was a teleprompter operator, I wrote a script called Some Will Cry Murder. And whilst this didn't, it was never made in the end, although they deliberated on it for, I don't know, about six months, uh, but it did get, get read by a lot of people, and that's when I really got off of my first writing jobs. But they weren't drama, right? It wasn't drama. There were short stories and various children's short stories, things like that. So, no, I didn't really have a background of, of writing drama, certainly. Now, it's pretty remarkable to me that you get this project, the Git Carter, with the Ted Lewis novel and everything, and then you're writing and directing a major 
film with, I mean, Michael Caine was a fairly major star at the time, correct? Yep, indeed. When that rumor went out, was trans- transmitted, I, the, I think it went out early January, anyway, by the end of January, that this book came through the post, believe it or not. I, I didn't have an agent, even. And the book came through, and it was Ted's novel, which is called Jack's Return Home. So, and it came with a letter which said, would you consider writing and directing this? So I read Ted's book, and it immediately struck chords with me, because, largely because of my days in the Navy. I had sailed up, or I sailed up the East Coast, or in fact, all around the British Isles, and this is in the 50s, 50 years before I got to make Get Cut, and I'd seen such poverty, such degradation, I, I really was quite shocked. Um, and I was sort of person, I was sort of unaware of it, really. I came from a small country town. And with, before I was dressed in bell bottoms, I was, I was just a matlow. When um, we each fishing port you went into, you, you went ashore. And you were accepted, you know, they didn't know you were, you know, your lower middle class boy because you were, you were just a matlow. And the fishermen sort of, they had a mixed feelings about fishery, fishery protection squadron because on the one hand, they would, we would help them if they got into trouble at sea. But on the other hand, we'd measure their nets to make sure that they weren't cheating on the fishing and the rest of it. So they were, they were ambivalent towards us. But you could go into a pub, you could go into all sorts of places, which... Uh, under normal circumstances, I wouldn't go near. Um, but the alternative was to not go anywhere at all. So I witnessed and, and met all sorts of unbelievable people and went to all, all extraordinary Hogarthian places. So when I read Ted's book, uh, it immediately rang bells for me in terms of the locations and the people that I'd seen in, in, during those two years. So I... Yeah, anyway, so I read the book, and as I say, it immediately rang bells for me. So I said, yep, I would like to do it. So, But what was extraordinary, really, about it was that I I got the book. I'd never adapted anything before. The deal was done. Uh, I wrote a draft of of the book, of the script, I uh, I hadn't. No one had mentioned Michael Caine at that point. I suspect Michael was on board already, but he was waiting to see what kind of script I'd turn out. Now, the first draft of the script I kept very close to Ted's book, um, but I knew that it wasn't satisfactory. So I went back and I rewrote it. And when I rewrote it, I I. Ted's book was really a flashback, one big flashback, and I thought with the first film, this is going to be too complicated for me to do. So I wrote a much more direct narrative, and of course in the book he isn't killed at the end, so I I also added that. But I also set I set the film in a different location. Ted had had, had Jack Carter change trains at Doncaster and go into Paintly, what was a a steel town in the Midlands of England, but I wanted to get to the coast, to the northeast North Sea coast, because that's the areas that I knew. So I reset it, uh, which of course did transform the novel. At that moment, when I sort of that was all decided, then Kane, I was revealed to me that Michael Kane was was wanting to do, was going to do it. So would have, I, I, I couldn't believe it anyway. 
so I had, as I say, I got the novel, I did the script, I now have Kane, I've got to cast, I've got to, I've got to put the crew together. And I, looking back, I just simply find it almost impossible to believe that I was filming the following July. In other words, I got a book in January and I was shooting that July. And I'd finished shooting by the end of August. I, it was only like a 36-day shoot or something like that. Uh, so it was done in really white hot, uh, you know, uh, uh, shooting literally from the seat of my pants. Uh, the operator that I worked with, I had made a film, uh, had made a uh, suspect with him. Rumor, sorry. And of course, I had never worked with Wolfgang Schizitzky or any of the other, uh, the sound man I'd worked with on documentaries. And I used some of the documentary filmmaker, cameraman that I'd worked with doing some of the second unit stuff, like at the race course, or the train going up to Newcastle from the, you know, the POV of the driver's, uh, driver's window, uh, and so on. So I, I always thought it was going to be like that. You know, I just get a book and I'd be shooting in July. But was I wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so that's how, I mean, looking back, I, I can hardly believe that one was able to make it so rapidly. I'm always surprised by just, the remarkable supporting cast that you have for this film. Everybody seems to be firing on all cylinders. It's interesting because virtually all of them, and none of them, I mean, had had made films before. Um, John Osborne hadn't. He he had made, you know, never been in a feature film. He's a playwright, as you know. The others had all, I'd seen them on television, or they had done television work, but none of them had done feature films. And they were, had a wonderful casting lady as well, who did a, she did a terrific job for me, I must say. So I was lucky. What was it like working with Michael Caine on that one? Michael, I was lucky again with this, because Michael uh, was incredibly cooperative, and he just did everything I asked him to do. And I it was, but that didn't last enormous risks in terms of shooting doing everything in one shot and often on the back of his head for example I mean I know he's in pretty well every shot in the film but even so there would have been a lot of stars who said what about my close up or the rest of that shit that goes on you know and he didn't he he was just uh, calm and he just was he just did everything he's a very private actor as well he he comes well prepared. You don't really have to talk too much about the character. And I was also like, he knew the character. He, he, did, you know, he comes from a pretty rough background himself, and, and, and London has some pretty unsavory sort of people that he undoubtedly would have met. And they gravitate towards the film industry, strangely enough, or they did in those days. They were often periphery to what was going on. There's a certain glamour attached to the cinema as you know and, and, they, and they gravitate towards that so I was lucky in every respect but Michael was perfect to work for me I mean if, you'd had a, if I'd had a difficult style then it would have, been, uh, would have been a different story Why the decision to kill him at the end? Most of the person dies it seems to be the only conclusion that I can well I know that it's all, each of us <laughs> each of us has the, it's the conclusion of our life but I I, I think that the uh, morale, morally, he, he had to, you know he wreaked violence, and violence will repay violence. So I and you know I mean revenge is a, it's a very strong motor for human species, I must say. And uh, you just have to watch the news, and you know enormous percentage of what you witness in the world 
every day on, on television and the news screens is, is, is driven by revenge. And this is a film that was, it's, it's very much in a, in a tradition of, of the theater in this country with Jacobean uh, tragedy and Jacobean, uh, you know, uh, revenge stories. So I and I I I, I insisted they, that he did die at the end. There was some discussion as the film went on, and it appeared that it might be okay as a film. That there was some pressure brought to bear on me, but I, there was no other way. I, there's no other potential ending, as far as I could see. So it wasn't necessarily a, a moralistic judgment, except that that's the way things usually pan out. So it seemed logical to me. Does that make sense? No, it makes total sense. And plus, I don't think that his life back in London would have been worth anything either. No, no, exactly. But it's interesting. A lot of villains came up to me afterwards. They they do come out of the woodwork and said, you know, lovely Phil Morgan, but you know, you shouldn't have killed him at the end. <laughs> they seem to take it very personally. <laughs> Was there any problem with the violence in this film? The knifing, I had to sort of, I, I played it more on sound, and I, although I, uh, you know, it's still very violent. It, 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 was, it came out at a very curious time, actually, because we just had Clockwork Orange, and then there was uh, Peckinpah's film, I forgot what it was called, Straw Dogs, and they caused a hell of a stink in terms of the violence. So by the time Carter came, I think. <laughs> You know, it was, uh, it's an odd film in that respect because it, whilst you think it's violent and it, it actually, it doesn't dwell on the violence at all. It's, there's no slow motion or anything like that that I recollect. And it's, it's more a sense of violence than, than necessarily actually violence being portrayed, although the knifing is pretty bad. And the worst bit is certainly the injection of the, the heroin into the, at the end. That was pretty tough, I think. Even I wince when I think of that scene. It was strange. I honestly thought that the audiences would be, you know, and I wanted them to be repulsed because here in this country, the the films about criminals had really been sort of, they were all slightly caricatures. So when I was asked to make it, I was determined to make it as realistically as I possibly could because there's no such thing as realism really in the cinema and the other thing that I did when I went to Newcastle uh, is that I remembered there had been a murder a killing there about two or three years before so I started investigating that through the the press cuttings and things it was called believe it or not it was called La Dolce Vita murder and La Dolce Vita was a was a big in those days in the in the provinces in England you had these big clubs for working men's clubs but they were very they were sort of very Vegas like I mean we're not I'm not comparing them to anything in Vegas but they they had that kind of quality so all the stars would play up there you know Tom Jones and everybody and they were kind of like a paradise by the you know for for working people uh, looking back I have no idea how they could afford to go in them. Anyway, the, the Dolce Vita was, was was nicknamed the La Dolce Vita murder because the, the guy was found shot in a in a Jaguar parked underneath a bridge nearby, 
And I started investigating the story. The, the perpetrators had been uh, arrested and were now in jail for life. Um, but it, 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 what, I, what it did do for me, it was, it was very much like being working on World in Action. It, I did, it rooted me as a director. I think a director has to be rooted as much as an actor, in a sense, that he, has to, he or she has to find a, a way of, of rooting him or herself in the subject matter and as much as a, 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 an actor has to find the character. So I found that investigating a real story about a real hitman, because this was the same a hitman had come up from London and perpetrated the killing, uh, helped me. And indeed, the, the location of the villain's house at the end, that the John Osborne character inhabits, was the actual building that this guy brother in fact had actually uh, had done a bunker he 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 done a runner when the, his brother was convicted with for the murder and uh he had fruit machines and all the working men's clubs so i i found that by latching onto this this actual story it, it gave me a, a lot of of information that validated the film itself i think Coming from somewhat of a documentary background, using some documentary filmmakers, and then staying rooted in reality as you make this film, I think definitely makes it still a very hard-hitting work. Yes. So uh, that was, uh, again, I, I still find this all kind of uh, astonishing that I was able to do all this so rapidly. I can't, I can't believe I fitted everything in. I mean, it's, anyway, there we go. I did. So that was good. One thing that I love about the film is the uh, use of sound. You know, you talked about the sound of the knife and the sound of that uh, rocking chair when Michael Caine is having uh, essentially phone sex with his girlfriend back in London. Yeah. Just remarkable. That scene plays out so beautifully. Yeah, it's, it's, it could have been really sordid, really, in a way, couldn't it? But in fact, it's, it's sort of witty. And it's, I was very lucky again. I had... I, I had a very good sound, not the actual recorders, although he was brilliant as well. And I worked with him in documentaries. But there was a guy called Jim Anderson, who's sadly no longer with us. And he'd worked with John Borman, I think, before. Anyway, I, I got to know Jim, and he was this sort of, now they call him, what do they call sound designer. Um, and Jim you know, gave me all sorts of wonderful things. The producer used to moan and groan. Michael Klinger, by the way, posted Polanski's first English-speaking films. He did, uh, he brought him in from, from Poland. Uh, so anyway, Michael was, you know, an experienced producer, but he moaned a lot about Jim offer, offering me so many alternatives. Um, but Jim found the, the bells, if you look at the scene with the rocking chair, there was little bells ringing. And they sort of grow in uh, in their their activity as it as it progresses, and then there's a the sort of scene at the beginning where he arrives at the Osborne house, and there's there's an electric fence sound, although there's no electric fence. It's just kind of a, a sort of pulse that's going through the scene. But I've always been obsessed by sound. I I think it's, it's I mean it's getting more and more respected now, but it's very under it was very underestimated for decades. I thought. I um, mean, it's a wondrous, uh, uh, wondrous uh, uh, device to be able to use. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say such a thing, but you can be so inventive. You can transform scenes with, with the simplest sound, you know. Uh, and uh, it's, I, I've always loved it. 
so in all my films, I've, I'm uh, obsessed by the sound. And that soundtrack, the the Roy Budd score. Yes. Every time I hear it, it just blows me away. Especially that opening with the train and with the the music. Everything just comes together and sets the scene so beautifully. Well, it was interesting. Roy was an old jazz pianist, you know, but sadly he's dead too. He produced this this wonderful opening music for me. And I again, I like with with music. I like I use it very frugally, actually. Frugally, I use it as little as I possibly can get away with. And he didn't realize it embedded in the opening uh, music was this wonderful motif that he had, musical motif. Da 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 da. So I said to Roy, I want to use that just on its own for, throughout the film. So I just would stand by him, and he was on his uh, vibes, and he, he he would just put the put the I'd tap him, and he just put it into the film wherever I wanted it, and it made such a difference to the, to the quality of the film. I thought, you know, it's it's a kind of sad little refrain actually, which enhanced it enormously. The first time I think I used it was when he's when he finds the coffin of his brother. Um, I think that was the first place I used it. Was it pretty much a given that uh, the three Michaels, you and Mr. Klinger and Mr. Kane, would work again together after Get Carter? Because was, it was a pretty big success, correct? Yes, it was. It was a, well, it got thrown away in America, um, sadly. MGM were going bankrupt. I seem to suffer a lot from bad distribution. But it, had, it made a big impact amongst among the cognoscenti in America, the, the distribution. They went straight to... Um, Went to the drive-ins um, almost immediately. Um, so, but it did. It had been seen in in Hollywood. I remember Michael Klinger reading me and saying Don Siegel had seen it, and he just thought it was wonderful. And of course, he would do because he would have made that film probably the same way as I did. I mean, he's a bit surprised at how quickly I was able to get it shot. But uh, but I was very so. A lot of people did see it, you know, as it counted, although the film itself was thrown away. Anyway, so when you're going back to your original question, when we finished shooting and the film was successful, certainly very successful here, um, we did discuss. Michael Klinger kept offering me various scripts, and I said no, I didn't want it. So I, I was determined that I was going to, it was going to be an original script, and I wanted to do something different. I'm, it's odd because I was quite shocked by it when I saw Carter. It's my first feature film, and I'd never seen anything of mine with an audience really. Um, and the audience, to my surprise, weren't shocked by the film. They seemed to enjoy it. So I really wanted to do something completely different. So I hung out to write my own scripts, which I wrote. It was originally it was called Memoirs of a Ghost Writer. Um, and so uh, the UA put the money up, but they didn't like the title, needs to say. So it ended up being called Pulp. Uh, which I loved doing. I had a wonderful time making that film. Now, did that one move as quickly for you as as Get Carter did? No, it was again. I uh, it had terrific reviews, um, but it didn't. Uh, it was I think ahead of its time. It was it was quite sophisticated comedy. I don't believe you've ever seen it or not. But um, and it 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 Mickey Rooney and Lionel Stander and it was a sort of it was it was a kind of it was my love affair with the B movie really because <laughs> I used to love the B movies often more than the A movies when I was a young man but it had great reviews but it had terrible it had no distribution basically in America 
despite great reviews, both on, in Time magazine and on television, uh, they gave it the red carpet treatment in Philadelphia, of all places, and it just died. I mean, so, you know, I always remember W.C. Fields was reputed to have had on his gravestone better here than Philadelphia. Well, I mean, they would say. And then we got all these great reviews, but they wasn't running anywhere. Uh, so they rushed around trying to find a cinema, but of course it was too late, really. And here, it also got great reviews. But the other thing is actually weirdly enough is I used the voiceover technique, and I used it in the suspect. So you, with the journalist, with this creepy gossip journalist, you, he, you could hear his copy, and you could see that he was just a liar. You know, he's a blatant liar. So the same as, as Billy Wilder did, for example. He started a lot of his films with a voiceover, like Sunset Boulevard and so on. Um, but with, with Pulp, I used it all the way through, so, because he's a sort of trashy writer. He, he, you know, he's, he, so he is using his... Again, he's sort of telling a story in a sort of Mickey Spillane kind of way. But the real problem was that cinemas in those days, certainly in the UK, the sound... Uh, system was just terrible. So whilst it worked on television, you know, in suspect, it, I don't think it, you know, because the sound system was so awful. You you had to really strain to hear the voiceover, um, which is a very pathetic excuse, maybe. But I think the film was just a bit too sophisticated, frankly, for, for audiences, maybe. When it comes to the actual making of the film, was that as as uh, straightforward and simple as Get Carter, or was this a little bit more difficult? Writing the script was kind of hard uh, because I, I, you know, I was doing something completely different. Have you have you seen the film ever at all? Yes, yes, you have. But it, well, you know then that it's it, it, you know I was trying something really quite hard to do, which is to to write something which is defying belief and making people believe it, and it's a sort of satire. But then it it does turn to be quite black at the end again. I have to say that I, I, I based it on, a, again, a story, a scandal that had happened in Italy, on the Montesi scandal, when this young woman was found uh, uh, drowned on a beach near Rome. And this scandal went on for like 10 years. It was absolutely, well, it wasn't hysterical because the girl was, was dead. But they involved everybody in it. The Pope, everybody was meant to have had a hand in this girl's death. So I based, you know, I, I I used that quite a lot in in the in the script. It gave me my structure, um, and the hunting lodge and the, the all the hunters, which is again were meant to be the people who'd involved. And there was they sexually abused her and so on and so on. Anyway, so I based it largely on on that on the Montesi scandal. Uh, and indeed, I was going to shoot it in Italy, but everywhere I went uh, with the location manager, it, it, I found that the locations were all going to be too far apart to be comfortable. And every single time we did anything, the guy would say, well, we'll have to pay the mafia. So I got all this insane. <laughs> so it's like being, the film was, it was like being in my own film, actually. So I rang Klinger, and I must say it was amazing, actually, because I rang and said, listen, I think we're going to be taken to the cleaners if we shoot it in Italy. So I said, I know Malta, which is a small island nearby, near uh, the Mediterranean, southern, well, you know where it is anyway, why I tell you. Anyway, so, and I had a house there, and it's a very small island, 
and I said, I think we should switch the whole thing from uh, from uh, Italy to Malta. And he, I must say, he was a brave man, and he agreed. We, we were going to, sh- we were about to shoot in five weeks, so I had to find all the locations in Malta very rapidly. But I knew the island well, so I was able to, you know, to do that. Uh, but I loved doing that film. Uh, Kane didn't like it because he hated Malta, but otherwise, that. So they said when an interview with Michael. <laughs> the Malta Times said, what do you like most about <laughs> our island? He said, the, the first plane out. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't go too well. Anyway, there we are. But it was, I, I enjoyed making that film. And they ran into the NFT I introduced it, I don't know, about a year ago. And I, it was lovely seeing it again. I enjoyed it. Mickey Rooney is so great. And he should have got uh, you know, an Oscar for that performance. <laughs> It's weird, actually, because I wrote it. I thought, again, it's based on a kind of uh, a truth. It's a mixture of sort of Jim, uh, Cagney and uh, uh, George Raft, you know, who Raft got uh, involved with the mafia, and they wouldn't let him back into America and things like that. And he became a greeter in a, a casino in London, you know. Anyway, so all of those characters were sort of based on a on, uh, on my own research, um, and but Rooney, when he came, I thought, God, he's going to really. Oh, I had a fight like hell actually to get Rooney because they, he was so out of uh, out of fashion at the time, and um, they wanted me to have all sorts of like tar- they wanted to. Like, um, I forgot the guy who played Hercules, tall guy. Anyway, they wanted him because he'd just done a good. I can't remember his name was. And uh, uh, he, anyway, so I said, but have you read the script? Because the whole thing is this guy's got to be short, you know, the cagney, all those gangster stars, Alan Land, they're all like me, you know, five foot four. I'm seven, actually, I'm big, I'm tall <laughs> by the side of these guys. Anyway, Rooney turns up in Malta, and uh, we never talked about the character. He turned him into a far more monstrous character than I'd ever have dared. <laughs> 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 He made him absolutely wondrously horrible. <laughs> so I was grateful to him. God, he was mad. He, he, I was back here in England after I'd shot, shot it and everything. I'd put editing, and the phone rang about three o'clock in the morning from LA. He'd obviously forgotten there was a time difference. And suddenly he's on the he's on the other end playing the piano to me, saying, "This is the music for the film." I said, "Really." <laughs> <laughs> oh God, he was—he's so energetic. That guy, he was exhausting. <laughs> what was that? Lionel Stando is huge. Is the antithesis stepping on my toe, banging me in the balls with his with his cue when we're doing the when we're doing the snooker scene? <laughs> I was exhausted, <laughs> exhausted. <laughs> anyway, there we go. You know, you play so well in the criminal milieu with uh, Get Carter and Pulp and Croupier and I, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. So it's always so surprising when you have that kind of middle group of films where you're doing The Terminal Man and Omen 2 and Flash Gordon and, and Morons from Outer Space, which I love, by the way. I saw Morons from Outer Space when it was first out on VHS in the U.S., and I love that movie. Why did they hate it here? They absolutely, I'll tell you the best critic I ever had and said, die before you see this film. <laughs> wow. 
It's so weird. I know they hate it here. But my American friends like it. I think there's a certain snobbery about it here. That's something something to do. And they had it in for Griffiths Jones and Mel Smith, I think, the critics. I don't know. Whatever it is. I'm very fond of that film, too. And actually, you know, it's, it's, I mean, I wanted them to be more serious than they were. I mean, in the sense that... that uh, the, you know, if you don't go with the Spielbergian sort of concept that if there are uh, 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 humans or, or spe- a species out there in space, that it's not necessarily going to be, you know, superhuman, super kind, super intelligent, and that if you took the trajectory of some sections of our population on this planet, then the, the, the trajectory would be down in terms of intelligence. So I thought that was really interesting, that whole idea. And it's just hysterical. Just so good. And yeah, I mean, Jones and Smith over here, I don't think a whole lot of people knew their work. No, exactly, um, yeah. So it was kind of a surprise. Like I only knew them through British imports, like uh, their appearance on The Young Ones, those kind of things. That's right. No, exactly. Yeah, that was a great one. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. I really am. Uh, you were talking about sound earlier, and I have to say that your use of sound in uh, Flash Gordon is definitely one of the most, you know, like the sound of Ming's ring at the very end, that kind of piercing noise. <laughs> Just it brings back such memories when I just hear just that sound. But it's got the, that film is just having a sort of re- revival again. It's here, it's I, I, last last year, they, August, they uh, they put it on a huge screen outside of the British in the forecourt of the British Museum, which I went to introduce. And I I I wasn't I was just going to introduce it and go away, you know. But I when I saw it. The quality of the film and the quality of the music and the sound, I just I stayed right through. It was, I had such a great time watching that. <laughs> oh, God, it was so funny. Empire Magazine's doing a big piece on uh, Flash uh, this month, I think, or next month. Anyway, I went to see... Uh, I, they asked me to do an interview, so I said, yeah, of course. Anyway, so and we did it on email. It's not like this. And I went to look at the various things on the internet, and I came across this. Uh, I think I probably went to Amazon to see what the reviews were like. But most of them were very good. But then there was a, some. Oh, was it an IMPD? I don't know what it was. But there was some <laughs> where the someone said, "Oh, I caught them out." There were all sorts of different uh, continuity laps, like when so and so dies and the, it's, he's, the blood is blue and then when the guy dies in Arborea it's, it's green and they <sighs> seem to think that I <laughs> I made a mistake <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't know what the colour of the blood was because the whole, <laughs> film, the, the whole film was improvised I mean I just you know I had no idea because Dino and Danilo whom I loved you know, the guy Danilo the designer of costumes and sets who's just mm. wonderful he made, spoke no English I don't think he even read the script to be honest with you. <laughs> so I had to sort of make it up as I went along because there's no way I could control it usually I control the film pretty tightly <laughs> but these two I really just had to say wait to see what they presented me with Danilo in particular so I just made it up as I went along so I suddenly when the first guy gets a sword in him I think he's a prince well let's make the blood blue so you, just, you know I had this wonderful crew who would rally to all these insane ideas that one had as one went along 
Uh, and it was just fun. I, I think that's probably why the film is... It's like a souffle, really. So, so accidentally, it rose. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and that's another one where the score is so wonderful. What was it like working with Queen on that? Exhausting. I, they were amazing. But they... I, I had filmed rock stars before. I filmed Rolling Stones and Beatles and anyway in the 60s. But... We had 21 days when they would start at 2.30 in the afternoon and finish about 4, 5, or 8, or whatever time was in the morning, right? And I had 21 days of that. But, of course, there were four of them, and there was all overdubbed, so only one of them would have to come in, right? I God, I was exhausted. I, and, of course, the sound levels were so enormous. <laughs> Uh, but it was uh, it was it was joyful. I have to say, it was wonderfully. Uh, they were just terrific uh, to work with and very inventive. They came up with all the themes which we worked in before they did the final score. So they did a rough track for, and we they didn't didn't you know they didn't have specific places to put them. They just came up with various various ideas. And then the editor and I, Malcolm Cook, and I basically um, uh, worked them in so that they could see where they would be going. And they were very inventive. Brian May, in particular, Freddie was just delightful and incredibly talented, actually, I must say. But Brian May was a sort of force of organization, let's put it that, put, put it that way. So it was a delight, I must say, to work with them. It was Dino's choice. I mean, it's very embarrassing because when they came to see me on the set, there was Pink Floyd outside of the moon booming all over the street. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of had kind to of switched off as quickly as I could. But um, uh, so, but it was actually Dino's idea. I don't know how he came up with the idea, but Dino was like that. And I'm very grateful because they they sure you know changed that film a lot, made it really work well. I was just rewatching it this morning, and just the the use of colors. I mean, Ming's throne room is just gorgeous. Yes, no, Danilo is. See, that's what I love about the film is it's the use of primary colors. It's sort of you know, Star Wars is so it's, it's a terrific film, but it's but it's very gray and sort of boring actually. By the side of this, it, this it really is you know a true a strip cartoon film. I mean, that's what it is, but it's it's true to its origins. I think. I mean, really and truly, when I I was very reluctant to make it, I because I none done nothing to do with special effects or comics. I wasn't really in, I was you know into British comics when I was a kid, but uh, they were very different to the kind of hero you know comic heroes that America were having. Um, so I was terribly reluctant to do it, but uh, and I didn't know where the hell to begin. Uh, but of course, I just you know. Dino flew me to New York on the Comet Air on the uh, Concorde uh, with, hey, Mac, can I give you a bumper fumble of Flash of the Gordon? So he gives me, <laughs> he gives me and I go on, on Concorde, which is all business fun those days, and we take off in New York, and everywhere that flattens out, you know, about 50,000, 800,000 feet above. <laughs> And it flattens out, and everyone opens their briefcase and takes out their computer readouts, and I take out my bumper thumb book of Flash Gordon. And I'm like, what the hell? And I, I think, well, they don't know that I am actually working. But well, what I did do, by the time I got to New York, I knew that you just stuck with the stuck with the, the composition of the, of the strip cartoon, um, and uh, that's what we did, really. We kept very close to the original. 
I'm always amazed at the level of actors that you have in that, too. I mean, what was that like working with uh, Max von Sydow? Oh, I mean, Max was just... I mean, so, I mean I'd only seen him in Bergman's films. He was a friend of Dino's until he came on the film. And I think he made a film with him before. I've forgotten whether... Anyway, so, but Max had such a great time doing that film. He loved it. He absolutely loved it. He's got a wicked sense of humor. You know, I mean, he's cracking his fingernails and sort of, you know, he just, but it was very weird, but he's such a gentle man. It's it's, it's, it's almost impossible to to compare what he was doing with Bergman, which must have been so searing, you know. And I'm sure he was just grateful to really have a break to escape from that because there was film after film must have been really exhausting for an actor in those kind of roles. But he's a great actor, Max. I wanted to uh, thank you for making Troupier. I really love that one as well. Oh, good. I'm glad. It was kind of a nice, um, you know, your work with Paul Meyersberg after that and working with Clive Owen like that and I'll Sleep When I'm Dead are just kind of a one-two punch. Yes, exactly. Croupier was... Croupier, I, uh, I was so grateful for that Paul I'd known for years, uh, but we'd never worked together. And uh, they, they, Filmfall came to me with this script, and I just felt it was it said everything to me about what was going on. It's very odd. The UK is such a sort of curious country in so far as that, at, you know, until Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher, it was a country that no one ever talked about money. It was just, it was infradig. You never mentioned your salary. We always used to sneer at Americans. Always, you know, they were quite happy to talk, quite rightly, in my opinion, to about money. But here we always talk the Americans. They always talk about money. Um, and it's as if it's the blood of life, which unfortunately it is. But there we go. Anyway, so when the script came to me, um, it, it, I just thought this is it. This has got everything in there, but it's so subtle. I mean, a lot of films are being, you know, used the casino as a metaphor. Uh, but somehow this didn't. It, it had a completely different slant in it because it's from the croupier's point of view, not the gambler. Usually, it's from the gambler's point of view, like Ange and films like that. Um, and even Casino was with, uh, with uh, Marty uh, Marty's film. Uh, so this had a completely different angle. Anyway, when Paul uh, uh, and I said, yes, I'd like to do it, he and I then worked together for, I suppose it must have been three months. He was living, was he living uh, No, no, he was living in London. Anyway, so we met, you know, every week when he would rerun because we had to get the, the writer side of, of Jack Manfred right. I, I, it's very dangerous to, to have a, a writer as your main character because the right, you've got to decide whether the writer's a good one or we, you know, most of us have got one novel or one fictional piece in us. Uh, but that's often it, um, if, if you've got that even. Um, and the number of, um, throughout one's life, one's met so many people who, you know, you say, what are you doing? And they say, I'm writing a novel, and then you never hear about the novel again. Um, so getting them to that side of Jack Manfred right was, was the most difficult thing. Anyway, we worked on it, and I, eventually we got there. So again, in the initial meetings, I was saying, you know, uh, about the sound again. I said, I want to take uh, the sound of the casino and put it over his personal life. So you hear the roulette wheel, you hear 
you know, the, the, the casino spills into, into life outside of, of the casino. And the, the other things that I did with Paul, really, for, during that initial period was that I, I, I put the, the Jack Manfred he had living on the first floor of a hut flat, his, his apartment in London was on the first floor, or second floor, I forgot where. And I said, no, no, he's, he's got to be in the basement, you know, so we put him in the basement. And then I said, and the casino, because a lot of casinos in London are in basements, so uh, thank goodness, I said, we must put the casino down in the basement, so you never see... Um, we never see daylight in that film at all. Even the tennis game I managed to, you know, do under flood, floodlights. Uh, so you never, ever see daylight, um, uh, which is where I wanted it. It gives you that awful sort of, you know, seething uh, 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 of, of, of darkness and sort of uh, an underground, uh, in a way. Um, and... So that was a, a, a major uh, a shift, I think, actually, in terms of, of the film. And I, anyway, when I made the picture, I said I, want to, I wanted the sound to spill over. Uh, I'm glad that I put the casino down in the basement because I had to, the, the deal, a lot of the money came from Germany, which meant that it had to be shot in, in, a, in, in Germany. So... Uh, you know, we've had so many, over so many years, we had Euro-put films where you, you know, they, in other words, the money came from different places and you've got these awful films with sort of, you know, with terrible actors trying to speak English and things like that. It was really comedic, really. But anyway, I built the casino uh, in a studio, which meant that I could easily, you know, incorporate it into the film without you knowing that you were, in fact, in Germany when you are in the casino. And his apartment as well, uh, which uh, we, we built in the studio. And I'm glad I made that a basement because it makes it so much easier, you know, to cheat in that respect. So I did that. I felt a lot of uh, Melville when I was watching that yes, film. Yeah, you're quite right. I have to confess. <laughs> I own up to that. <laughs> no, this, I mean, uh, the, the last... Is it the last... No, not the last samurai. Which one is it? This, the samurai. The, sam, the, the samurai. The samurai. That's, you know, it's a wonderful film. They're all He's a wonderful director. I quite loved his films. I felt a lot of Bob Flambert in there as well. Yes. Paul, I think, worked with him for a while. Paul Marsberg, as an assistant of some sort. I don't know why, but he is so not the common flavor, so it's always nice to talk to somebody who is familiar with his work. Well, I, I think he's just, you know, incredible. He's just on his own. <laughs> he really is on his own. So I was, uh, I was grateful to be at least uh, if you're going to steal, then at least steal from someone else. Good. Well, I mean, there are overtones of him, but it's definitely yeah. your guys' work. I mean, I, I love the whole the split between the the punter and the croupier. The 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 whole idea of you know, isn't Jack's uh, sign a Gemini? Just having the twins going on in there, it was so nice. And then you going back to the voiceover and utilizing that again was great. Yes, I agree. By that time, the sounds a little better in the cinema, I'm glad to say. Uh, it's very, it's very, uh, it's interesting because with Pulp, for example, or indeed with with R Rumor, I just you could write the 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 voiceover afterwards in a way, you know. Um, but I had Clive learn the voiceover. Normally, actors wouldn't have to bother to do that. But why I asked him to learn it so that. When he's not speaking, he knows what he's thinking. 
And it made an unbelievable difference to the way his face, which is, as you know, he doesn't sort of, it's not cremated, it's very supple the way he uses it. But the thoughts that he's having, which were finally matched when we did the, you know, the dub and everything, and recorded the voiceover, worked so well. But in addition to not just that his reactions to what he's thinking are so perfect, but also it allowed me the freedom to move the camera uh, knowing where the voiceover was going to come in and him knowing where the voiceover was coming. So I could give it a kind of... Uh, it had a, a flow which I always seek to get, you know, simplicity of... Uh, but, you know, but you can hold shots that are single shots and still maintain the, the pressure uh, of, of the storytelling. Again, going back to Carter, for example, there was a scene where they've got this guy and they take him back to the boarding house. And there's a whole scene where with a bottle of whiskey and the landlady comes up and he brings the tea. And, a, and I remember looking at the scene and thinking, God, this take me about a week to shoot if we do it in the traditional way, close up here, and then you reorganize it. So I worked out with the operator how to do it in one shot. Now, this meant that quite a lot of it's played on the back of Michael Caine, but you get a kind of, you know, a rhythm to the thing. And the actors are much better always when you're leading them in that, in that you know, when they have to play as if they were in the theater. In a sense, they've got to be right on the nose and timing and everything. And again, with the, with the card game in, in Croupier, I just remembered, uh, you know, the operator and I uh, worked out a way where you could go from, you know, with the cards, having been dealt you could look at any of the cards although it's all in one shot and they would be the right cards do you remember the scene and it just it's all the whole of the poker game which would have taken you at least a day to shoot if you'd done it in the traditional I call it the Wimbledon way you know <laughs> I can't like, cutting you know from close up to close up just drives me absolutely spare you know you, you want to keep you want to have that kind of fluidity uh, in a scene, and I, uh, I, I struggle constantly when I was making film. I fear my career is now over, but uh, you know, when I did make films, I struggled hard to get that kind of, uh, of, of, of fluidity in, in, into the shots. Because the danger is also, if you, if you are going to do a, something in one, one shot... You have to, you, there's no way, you know, you, there's no, I never allow any cover or anything, which scares the hell out of producers, but there is a risk attached to that. You've got to know that the scene will work, you know, that the, the drama is there and the, the pressure is there that, that it'll sustain. If you don't think it's sustained, then you have to go and get cover, but I, I resist it as much as I can, I must say. Now, you said that your career as a filmmaker might be over, but you've, become an author in the years uh, recently, correct? Yes, I've just finished another one, actually, another uh, novella this time. So I, I got the rights back. To, I wrote a novel called Watching the Wheels Come Off, which, weirdly enough, is based on a script that I never got made uh, years before, which is the third... The script that I did after The Terminal Man is a script called Mid-Atlantic, uh, and it was based on when I was out in L.A. doing the Tunnel Man, I came across this course that was on leadership dynamics, and it had gone wrong and, uh, on one weekend. There were weekend courses, and it got violent and so on. So 
I, w- I went to Waterbrothers and I said, I'm so shocked by what happens in this course that I'll shoot it for nothing. I'll, the director will just give me some acts and we'll do it over two weekends. And uh, they, these courses were set in the Holiday Inn or wherever. And they read the book and they were completely shocked. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was capitalism at its most virulent. Let's put it that way, gently. <laughs> anyway, so they didn't like it. I came back to England and I was telling somebody about this course. They said, well, they came here. I said, really? So they went to the Royal Garden Hotel. And then a journalist got in there and blew the whistle and they vanished. So I wrote a script called Mid-Atlantic, which Malcolm McDowell is going to play the main character. This is 1974 or 75, something like that. And Malcolm is going to play the protagonist. And in those days, 75, nobody had, Thatcher hadn't come in. No, hardly anyone here had ever been to America because I'd been there now a lot. Um, and I set it in a seaside resort in England, and it was as if this course had suddenly um, re-emerged, and they do a deal with a local hotel, and this guy gets involved with it, so it's called Watching the Wheels Come Off. The publisher here, for some inexplicable reason, it was part of a series of crime uh, crimes books. And he didn't do anything. I mean, no advertised or anything. I have no idea. He does, normally he did uh, true crime but this was his first fictional, apart from the fact that they're all fictional, I suspect. But anyway, so uh, I managed to get the rights back. He gave them back to me, actually, because they just didn't do anything. So I've rewritten it, and it's called Bait, and the other one is called Grist. That's the uh, the novella. So I'm hoping that I can get them published together with a little bit of luck. We'll see. Yeah, so that's what I'm doing now. That's what you're working on presently? Are you doing, like, uh, you talked about uh, Flash Gordon kind of getting a, a new life? Are there other retrospectives of your work and that kind of stuff happening? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm slowing down now. I don't, I'm not doing any more introductions or anything like that. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm writing, and I live in the middle of nowhere, and it's, it's peaceful. Um, I'm 83 now, and uh, I sadly had to withdraw from a film that Trevor had written, who also did I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. He wrote that script. Um, mm-hmm. Because I, they, they, they've got uh, money, but really and truly the, the restrictions in terms of me doing it properly were just too much for me to bear. I couldn't, it's, uh, it, for, to make independent films, no, it's, it's such a scramble. It's really it's tough. And right. you've got to, it seems to me you've got to write, uh, going back to being an accountant, it seems to me you've got to write scripts that are that are that fit a certain kind of at least in the UK I can tell you that that's not maybe not in America so much but that, that fits the uh, you know what you can possibly arrange in terms of a budget um, so you do you know you just make things do very simple things and inventive things but the script was a sort of road movie and there was no way that we could shoot it you see with our sleep when I'm dead I I did all the all the car stuff in the studio which because I wanted them see cars these days are incredibly quiet as you know so I wanted all the interiors to be quiet well if you're shooting them on a low load it's, it's noisy and the road services are so bloody awful these days so the poor operator's eyes and then he'd taken out so I decided I've had enough of that and I shot it all in the studio did you see our sleep when I'm dead out of interest Yes, yes, that was great. It wasn't as successful. Because unfortunately, uh, Paramount Classics, I think they were, sold it in completely the wrong way. See, Krupia was interesting in a sense. that It was very low profile, and it was all word of mouth. It was no hassle at all. You got very terrific reviews, and it started in 17 cinemas and just went on month after month after month after month. 
Um, and that's the way that these kinds of films should do. They didn't pay any, spend any money on advertising or anything. It was all to do with word of mouth. At Paramount, you know, they did stupid posters and spent money up, the, up front and put it into too many cinemas and so on and so on. And it was, I, you know, I pleaded with them not to do that and just to go for the same audience that Croupier had uh, and do it that way. One, it's cheaper uh, and it's more intelligent, you know, and go for the intelligent audience. They would go the correct trailers, which is ridiculous, you know. I mean, it wasn't like that. It's very similar in many ways to, uh, to Croupier. So that was, uh, yeah, disappointing. Here, terrible reviews. Absolute damning right across. One good review, I think, that was it. So, um, I'm not my country's favorite favorite. <laughs> However, none of them were as bad as Die Before You See This Film. <laughs> Maybe that should be on my tombstone. <laughs> I did die before I saw this film. Well, if you ever do your memoirs, I think that's the title right there. <laughs> yes, I agree. You're quite right, actually, yes. Anyway, so... You mentioned uh, you almost work with Malcolm McDowell in the 70s, and then you ended up working with him in um, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. Yes. Well, we've been friends for, for years, um, and then he moved to L.A. We lived quite close to each other in London and in Dorset, where I am now. Um, and I sort of, you know, we're still, we still speak to each other occasionally. I mean, I'm incredibly grateful to him for doing that very, really horrible role in, in our sleep. Um, his wife never forgave me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, but he, I, I have to say he is incredible in that scene. He is incredible because it's 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 a it's a totally unsympathetic scene and it's also really weird one to pull off because the reason that he uh, buggered this guy or raped him is so stupid so trivial that you know you sit there and say i can't believe this you know um and what was awful was that i had not a very good sound man on that film and when i came to dubbed the, the scene, it was just awful. And Malcolm, I mean, it was a very emotive sort of scene on his part. He did, he revoiced it in air, with him in LA and me in London. I, I honestly, that is professionalism of the absolute highest order. It was incredible. I never, ever thought that I would have to ask anybody to do that, but he did it. He's, just, he's such a trooper, that guy. He is. He's professional right down to his uh, cuticles. He actually has become known for that in films because I'm thinking of him in uh, Caligula as well. No, absolutely. I saw you did you did one on Caligula. God, you did. You should you should get Malcolm talking about Caligula. I mean, it is absolutely hysterical. I mean, it is. But he, I mean, he, he makes me absolutely scream with laughter, beg, beg, begging him to stop telling me any more stories. It is. It is probably the maddest film, that, uh, apart from uh, <laughs> the island of Doctor Moreau. Uh, it's probably the maddest film that's ever been made. <laughs> oh dear! Have you seen the film Ted yet? I saw it on television. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of that? Well, I loved it. I mean, I, I got really, very quite vulgar towards the end. I thought. But I, I thought it was terribly funny, I must say. Uh, I enjoyed it. I thought it was such a nice tribute to uh, to Flash Gordon in there. 
no, no, exactly. No. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I, I, I enjoyed it, and it was a successful film, wasn't it? I think it was a Ted Two, isn't it? No. Is there a Ted Yeah, two? I haven't seen that one yet. Yep. So I presume Flash doesn't appear. Are, are they are they remaking Flash? Uh, you know, I've heard rumors about that, but yeah, I think okay. Sam Jones is in the second one as well. Oh, right. I think there's a big. I, I was in an airplane last week and I saw a little bit on a guy's monitor, like two or three seats up, and it right. seemed like there was a fight at a comic uh, convention with uh, Flash in there. So. Right. Might be similar to the throne room um, scene where they're playing football. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> See, the thing is that what I hated about Get the remake of Get Carter, Hitman's fine, but the remake of Get Carter. What I loathed about that, one let not ask me or tell me or anything. I, I had no, I get no percentage on on Carter. I got seven, I got seven thousand. Oh no, about six thousand, seven thousand dollars for writing and directing. And, and, no residuals. So I had no rights at all on the film. But the uh, but the thing that I really loathed about that was using the same title, um, and uh, that was that was all cheap. I thought actually, um, because I've various. I was in France. I remember about a, a month ago. Uh, they were showing. I was doing a book signing. It was a literary festival. And uh, this girl came out and said, I've seen the Gitakata, you know, and she said, hey, hey, it's slow for me, you see. <laughs> I thought, well, all the things, I mean, look, I mean, you can all have all sort of reservations about Gitakata, but the one thing you can't say is it's slow. It's just, so I realized, I said, hey, why did she say that? I think it's slow. Anyway, so she went away. Then I realized, of course, she'd seen the wrong version. Actually, she probably said, <laughs> anyway, there you go, that's life. So there we go. Turn him off. Bernie Casey is Tackett, the hitman from MGM. Read it off. All right, we're back and we're talking about Get Carter this week. Now, I know, Eric, that you are very much a Ted Lewis fan. Can you tell us a little bit more as far as the history of Carter? And we know that the movie definitely ends with Jack Carter being killed, kind of this mad dog being put down. Is it the same way in the book as well? Very almost assuredly, I'm sure he dies in the book. Uh, it is a little ambiguous, but it's uh, it's here. I'll read you the final sentences in the book, and you can come up with your own theories. Uh, then there is a silence for a long time until I hear the car door slam again and the engine start up, and I listen to the sound until it dies away, and then there is nothing, nothing at all. He's shot. I'm assuming he's dead because it's just kind of 
wall curtains for Carter. It's all over for him because his his life as a London gangster has been completely compromised because the affair between him and his employer's wife was discovered, and uh, he's been ratted out. It's over. So there's no kind of going, even if he does somehow survive the events of the book, there's no going back for him. And I guess the author himself, Ted Lewis, kind of made that known because the sequels, or rather prequels, are prequels. The the two Carter books that came out afterwards, they, they um, the events take place before him going up north in either 69 or 1970. The movies and the books can't quite figure out which year exactly uh, Carter goes up to take care of family business, as it were. Um, the book clearly states it's 1970, but for whatever reason, the movie states it's 69. The two prequels is uh, are take place mostly, the second one takes place in London entirely. And uh, you mentioned about how the law doesn't figure in to get Carter. The law very much figures in to get Carter's law, or in the American publication title, it was Carter and the Law. And uh, you kind of get the idea of how the mechanics work, uh, the the various uh, machine works and how Carter keeps things in force. He pays off policemen. And uh, in fact, the, the main antagonist in the novel is a policeman himself, a corrupt one. So you get a lot more of that than you did in Get Carter, or none at all, rather. And then the third and final prequel is kind of a strange change of pace entirely. It uh, mostly takes place up in Spain inside of a villa. It's very, a very one-location kind of hot room sort of uh, story uh, where the law doesn't figure in at all, in fact. And then you told me that you collect Carter's stories because there weren't just the two prequels or the three novels. Lewis had also written had written some short stories. Can you tell me a little bit more about those? That's correct. Yeah, um, there's the two, there's the three novels, as you said, and which the last two weren't even published here in America until just recently, in fact. And then there is that I know of at least one for certain because I have it right in front of me, in a smut mag from 1973, titled "Men Only." There is a five-page short story involving Jack Carter by Ted Lewis called Kings, Queens, and Pawns. And this is something that you can barely find anywhere. There was only one mention of it on the Internet that I know of, and that was from Nick Tripolo, who's actually Ted Lewis's biographer. Kind of a day-in-the-life sort of thing. Obviously, it's just it's not long enough for it to be a full-fledged long story, but it's a day-in-the-life. And what's kind of interesting also is that the first third of it is ripped directly from word for word, in fact, directly from the second novel. I guess he figured it didn't sell very well or something, perhaps, and he figured no one would notice, and he was probably right. There is another, perhaps, there. I know for a fact there's another Ted Lewis short story in the same publication, just a different issue. Not sure what the name of it is. It's coming on the way. Unfortunately, I um, was not able to get it before our talk today, so I couldn't really tell you if it is a Jack Carter short story or not. But it is what it is. This uh, It's kind of a miracle that I even have this. How does the characterization of the Jack Carter in the story and the books necessarily compare to the Jack Carter of the film? I think he's the same. He's changed only slightly in that uh, I think this was a... Uh, Lewis, obviously the movie Get Carter, uh, he must have been very proud of it because... Kind of in the same way that Ian Fleming changed Bond's nationality from completely English to Scottish, 
because of Sean Connery, the success of Sean Connery. Carter, who was obviously from Scunthorpe, but well, actually from the north somewhere, uh, he wouldn't have a Cockney accent like Michael Caine does. It's it's explicitly made clear that he has a Cockney accent by the time the prequels show up, and this is obviously three years, the first one, three years after the release of the movie. Uh, the the author mentions on several occasions that he has a Cockney accent. Uh, mainly because he had been living in what's called the smoke, London, for a great many years being a gangster. He just picked up the accent. So, yeah, there's a lot of kind of weird things like that that he tries to match it up with the portrayal of Carter in the movie. So he's only changed in that way, really, because in Get Carter and then uh, Jack's Return Home, he doesn't wear the nice suit or anything like that. He's just kind of a a bummy sort of criminal type, you know, Um He's got those, uh, what, what, what would you call those, if any, people who know about fashion, certainly more than I do, uh, perhaps I'm talking to two people who do, those sort of uh, working class English hats, they're kind of like berets, maybe they are berets. Well, he's kind of, he just kind of wears working class clothing. Uh, he's not wearing a suit or anything in the novel, um, from what I remember, but that very much changes in the prequels. Again, it's just this attempt to make him look and sound more like Michael Caine's portrayal in the film. So he's only changed in that way, really. We do get a little bit more insight into his character as far as what he will and will not do. There's a moment where he's interrogating this old lady in in the second in the first prequel, and he mentions offhand to somebody else, "It's like, well, what am I going to do? I'm not. I haven't started stuffing old ladies yet, so I'm not going to start doing that. I haven't done it yet. I'm not going to do it now." So we know that he has some sort of moral code that Maitland was saying about earlier that he won't do certain things. He won't murder an old lady. In the third book second prequel they're watching a pornographic film with an underage child uh and somebody's gloating about it and he's like i don't do that or he's he's kind of on his high horse at this point and he's saying oh, this is disgusting and one of the other gangsters says oh come on you you've handled this kind of stuff before i haven't personally handled it he says other than that no he's the same guy that he was in in uh in the first novel so we talked a little bit as far as the pornography goes and it's comes to be the secret at the middle slash end of get carter the movie i'm talking about now and it's interesting that in the first remake 1972's hitman by george armitage we move the action from london to los angeles and the whole idea of filmmaking really comes up and rather than the character of jack carter coming up from London to Newcastle, we have Tyrone Tackett, played by Bernie Casey, coming down from Oakland to Los Angeles. And with this being said in Los Angeles slash Hollywood, we really start to play more into this whole filmmaking aspect. We have Pam Greer playing Gozilda, which is an amazing character name. She is, is an actress, tells him right out at the beginning about that. And then we have even, uh, we have this whole idea of filmmaking, even when it comes to uh, his brother was a used car salesman, and we see a used car salesman, this used car commercial being shot. And that has Sam Laws as uh, as Sherwood Epps in there. And Sam Laws is definitely one of my favorite actors. And if you're not familiar with him, you definitely should be. He's kind of the Keith figure, I suppose. Uh, he was friends with the brother, and he keeps Tyrone informed. It's interesting, though, that Tyrone is not a hitman. Even though that's the name of the movie, he's allegedly a lawyer coming down from Oakland. And it just 
doesn't necessarily jive with me that he's a lawyer. He's kind of the good guy in this one, but he does seem to be working for a pornographer and he's working for one of my favorite actors of all times. He's working for John Daniels, the star of black shampoo and candy tangerine man and bare knuckles and a a lot of other stuff. And so it was fantastic seeing John Daniels show up every once in a while, whenever, uh, Brady Casey calls back up to Oakland. He basically is portraying the two brothers. He's one, one person, uh, that we saw in get Carter. If anything, we get filmmaking, and then we also have a zoo uh, and zoo animals becoming a theme to the film, uh, which I guess you could kind of paint it as like a Law of the Jungle kind of thing, if you want to dig for that one a little bit. Do you have any idea if Pam Greer actually had the tiger mauling her? I mean, it looks like a woman. It looks like a lady. It doesn't look like a stuntman. It did not look like a stuntman. But I do not think that Pam Greer had a lion anywhere yeah, um, near her. Um, yeah, you're probably right. Boy, it looks, it certainly looks like her, but yeah. I was totally reminded of Goodfellas during that part, that whole idea of... They must really feed each other to the lions down there because the guy gave the money right up. Maitland, what did you think of Hitman? You know, the difference between Hitman and Get Carter is that Hitman is actually fun. Uh, even though it does retain the downbeat ending and, and you know, certainly has a certain harshness to it, it is basically a fun movie in a way that Get Carter isn't. It takes place in the same kind of criminal milieu, but it, it's totally, it, I mean, it's got a big super fly body on that Get Carter absolutely doesn't. I mean, Get Carter is so grim and so downbeat. And, you know, Hitman, even when bad things are happening, everybody's got incredible hats and astonishing bell-bottoms and fabulous tops. and it, It's more fun. It's certainly much more lighthearted, yeah. Tackett, uh, Bernie Casey is, is even, you know, he's very likable compared to Carter. I think it works really well, particularly, like, the first half hour works really well, and then it starts falling into, like, the, the, the Get Carter stuff, where it's like, okay, we got to do this scene now, we got to do this scene. And, you know, I'm very familiar with the other movies, so it's just kind of like, well, I'd rather watch the other one. But it is very interesting to... Uh, to hear the vernacular change a little bit because there's whole scenes taken wholesale from, from Carter and uh, whole lines too, like particularly the famous um, one-liners like, uh, you're a big man, but you're in bad shape. That changes to uh, more fitting for the character. That's a more fitting uh, dialogue for the characters. It's still there. The kernel of the idea is still there, but they change it up. Um, and that way it's very fun. And yeah, of course, uh, what kind of jars you a little bit is the whole zoo aspect of it for some reason uh, uh, with the lions and what have you. Was there a, a downbeat ending for Hitman? He survives at the end, does he not? Yes, he does survive. In fact, it kind of becomes this bloodbath as we have kind of this cleaning up of things. With Git Carter, even though the criminals have been defeated, so many people have been killed by Carter or picked up by the police or the machinations of the law might finally start to move, though we don't necessarily ever see that or see that come to fruition. When it comes to the end of Get Carter, at the end he's obviously killed. Spoilers. But as far as the bad guys, the bad guys, his bosses down in London, they get away with it. They get away clean. The world is still a horrible place at the end of the film, just like it was at the beginning of the film, though some people have been put away or killed or whatever. Uh, the world is still crap at the end of the film. But when it comes to the end of Hitman, 
we have the guy who sells out Tyrone's brother, and we have the guy who's making the porn films, and we have uh, the niece, though unfortunately the niece gets killed in this one. But in this one, we have this group of Italian gangsters who eventually there's this real great moment of catharsis where all these guys in hoods come in and machine gun all of these Italian gangsters. And so we have the person who has been paid off to kill Tyrone, who is there listening on the police radio because he is a policeman, hears that they have all been killed and in a terrific cynical twist he decides to not kill tyrone because he's probably not going to get paid i think that's probably one of the best endings and also great that the trigger man is paul gleason who most people will probably know from uh breakfast club don't mess with the bull young man you'll get the horns Though some people might know him from other things, uh, especially Miami Blues, where he shows up in another George Armitage film. The police are corrupt, definitely, and it's kind of nice that we do have a police cop in here, and it's just another level of corruption. Mm-hmm. And, you know, particularly in, in America in the 70s is very much something that was a concern in black communities, that the cops were, if not corrupt going through really not on the side of black oh yeah and the police were there to take out a brother like tyrone who is successful and has his shit together and here's this white cop who's going to take out this guy and we're coming off of an era where king and x were killed and tyrone is another black hero And frankly, I love Armitage for the fact that he was so often not on the side of the status quo as a filmmaker. I do really have to give a shout out to two of the kind of flunkies or goons that are in this. Roger E. Mosley and Christopher Joy, who are in there as Leon and Huey. Their chemistry is terrific. The way that Bernie Casey interacts with these guys. And again, with this being a Los Angeles story, we have this whole uh, kind of car theme going through this, and Tyrone constantly messing with Huey's car, which is great. And I, even the white guy in the uh, back seat with the daishiki on, uh, he, he deserves a little bit of a shout-out as well. But yeah, the clothes in this, the hair, Bernie Casey's fro, is just amazing. This really just goes above and beyond in all aspects. This is one of those kind of classic black exploitation films that really just transcends the kind of the muck of some of the genre. I mean, if you guys listen to this show, you know that I love black exploitation films, and this is definitely one of those upper echelon films. And by the way, a pretty good genre. There are a lot of cartoonish movies that, you know, play into the big black super stud, uh, sticking it to the man kind of stereotype. But, in fact, an amazing number of black exploitation films really were very subversive and very undercutting of the status quo and very much on the side of social change at the risk of sounding Pollyanna-ish. No, I don't think you sound like a Pollyanna. I mean, there are so many good movies. Films like The Spook Who Sat by the Door, or even in a film like The Mac or Superfly. There are so many great films that kind of 
play with uh, the status quo and subverting it, and this is definitely one of those. This is definitely a better film than like a, a, a what feels like a white action film that was just cast with black people, such as like a I don't know a Time Shaft feels like that to me. And it's great. There's a nice reference that Gozelda drops that she has uh, been in Shaft. Oh, there is that reference, yeah. I grew up in Harlem. So those were movies that really did, in a very real way, reflect the things that I was seeing day to day as I was growing up. I just, you know, I was a white girl in Harlem, to be sure. But, you know, I, I, I looked at those movies and I really did see um, narratives that spoke very strongly to the kids I went to school with, to their parents, to people that I grew up with, frankly. If I had one complaint about Hitman, it would be that there is no official soundtrack to the film, because I think that the music for this film is amazing. And it was done by H.B. Barnum, who is one of the members of The Wrecking Crew. And I don't know if you guys have seen the documentary The Wrecking Crew. I highly recommend it they weren't uh, they were the studio musicians who were responsible for so much of the music of the 60s to the point where they were better musicians than the actual musicians that the the band members themselves it's a great great documentary called the wrecking crew i really recommend it uh, i will have a link to it over at our website when i post this fi- when i post this episode And the opening song to this movie is definitely up there with some of the best themes that I've ever heard. And I wish there was a non-taped-off-of-the-TV or DVD-type version where you don't have uh, the noise from the movie going on with it. And unfortunately, I think this was one of those Warner Brother Archive releases, so it never seemed to get the uh, respect that it's gotten. It never seemed to have gotten the respect that it was due. It's certainly the better of the two remakes. Fantastic. There are some great moments of levity in Hitman, and I won't say that that there aren't moments of levity in Get Carter, but it much more feels like gallows humor. And one of the big differences, too, with Hitman is that it's all shot in the sunshine, uh, whereas Get Carter seems to almost be overcast at all time. And the moments of violence and severity that are under the clear light of day uh it's it kind of uh works to kind of bring home a little bit more of the power of the film as far as the idea of showing these things in the light of day playing them against those moments of levity seems to make the violence even more impactful when it's curtains for another one of the characters and we hear those cries of the jungle the elephants trumpeting the lions roaring it really just hits me the right way. Well, you also have to love the conceit of Africa, America, where the end of it plays out. I mean, it's so ridiculous. It's so commercially shallow. And yet, there's a real kind of resonance to it. I think it's very true what you said. I, I, if it wasn't for the synopsis on IMDb, I don't think I have ever would have gotten the idea that he was a lawyer at all. I don't even think that comes up in the movie. I could be wrong. I want to say that they mention it once, but it's just this kind of a strange thing. Like, I would have thought that he was an enforcer or something, but I think it's nice that he's not an enforcer, that he is a lawyer, that he has his shit together. 
I don't know if I figured him as an enforcer, but maybe just like some ex-criminal who tried to make good up north and then came back down to deal with his brother's uh, situation. There's a lot of dialogue towards the last half of the movie when he starts offing people, where it's like, man, you're not a killer. And there's this kind of motif that just keeps coming back. Like, you're not a killer. They're trying to convince him that he's not a killer before he puts a, you know, a bullet in their brain or something. I think it's that they're, they're speaking to him as the guy who got out of the hood and made a career for himself in mainstream America, and now he's back with a gun, and they're like, what? You're not the killer. You're the guy who went to college, went to law school, made a career for yourself. Why are you back here pointing a gun at me? Right. And then what's just kind of muddling is that at one point he tells another character, like, my brother wouldn't kill himself. I'm the freak in the family, remember? just kind of confuses things a little bit. That's one of the things that I like about Jack's Return Home, that you get a little bit in Get Carter, but you definitely get in the book the whole idea of Frank being the good one and Jack always kind of being off. He was not necessarily the one that his father liked. He just always seemed to be the fuck-up. To the point where when he ends up having sex with his brother's wife, Frank's wife, that it's almost almost by accident, which is kind of strange. But there's this playfulness that goes the wrong way. But yeah, he is just, at heart, not a good person. And it sometimes feels like, almost like he's making excuses for himself, like he could be good if he wanted to. But at other times, no, he just realizes, no, I am the screw-up, I am the bastard. And again, in Get Carter, he does say, I'm the villain. Which is great that your hero says that. All right, we're going to take another break and play a interview with the director of Hitman, George Armitage. And before we do that, I just want to throw this in here that I'm so thrilled that I was finally able to speak to George Armitage. Uh, fans of the show will probably recognize the name. We've actually talked about him a few times on here. We covered Darktown Strutters a long time ago, and then we also covered Miami Blues. He wrote Darktown Strutters. He directed uh, and I believe adapted Miami Blues and he is uh, such a talent, and I was just so glad to finally be able to sit down and talk to him. He had a uh, recent retrospective of his work, and so he was much more um, willing to come onto the show and talk about it than he had been before. So it was a truly a pleasure to sit down and speak with him. So we're going to go ahead and play some messages from uh, some of the other podcasts around here that we like, play a little uh, uh, sponsor clip from uh, Adam and Eve, you know, if you're ever looking for some kinky stuff going go on over to Adam and Eve. We get a little kickback from those guys. but uh, And then we'll play the interview with George Armitage. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy sexy piece of lingerie or anything you desire 
Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today, what's going on. These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. If you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, tune in outside the cinema, baby, you know, find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com, and you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show. You lucky son of a gun. How did you get involved with the movie business? Were you always a movie fan? Oh, yes. I, I was. My parents uh, both were huge. My dad did a little theater, and my mother was a, a local playwright in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. She had a couple of produced uh, uh, little theater productions there back in the 40s and 50s. And uh, we would um, we were just absolute movie freaks. Uh uh, on the weekends, my brother and I would go. We'd, we'd go to the Central Theater in West Hartford, Connecticut. We'd go to the 10 Cent Morning Show. And then we'd go up to the uh, bathroom, and you could go out the window. And we'd go out the window onto the roof and wait for the other show to begin. Like this, we, the, the, the cartoon shows would get over at noon, and we'd go hide out there. And then come back in the window of the bathroom and go down and watch the, uh, the, the double feature on, on Saturday. And then either both of us or one, or one of us would go the next day when the the, uh, the the double feature changed on Sunday. I think that's how it worked. And I, it, it's a little, yeah, there'd be another double feature. So sometimes we'd see four. And then during the week, my parents would, would go all over uh, Connecticut. In those days, you know, going five or ten miles to the theater was like, you know, around the world. And uh, I, I remember going out uh, with them. Uh, uh, at night and, and sitting there watching a double bill somewhere else. And uh, so we'd see five, six, eight, ten pictures, uh, you know, a week. And then TV came in and we just watched everything, uh, you know, all summer long. We did nothing but for movies and stuff. So, yeah, we were, we were total movie freaks. And then in the mid-50s, my dad was transferred to Beverly Hills from Hartford and uh, went to Beverly Hills Catholic School. And um, we had kids that like uh, be like uh, just before noon to knock on the door, and somebody would say, "Oh, Tim, your car is here." And he, uh, Tim Murphy, was a musketeer, would leave. And then uh, Elaine um, Pincho was in my class, and she changed her name to Elaine Joyce and uh, became an actress on Broadway. She was in Sugar Babes back, in, and she's married to uh, uh, right now to the. Um, Playwright, I can't remember Neil Neil Simon. Yeah, so uh, and and Betty Grable was there picking up kids, and Ricardo Montalban and Stephen McNally, and and a number of um, 
supporting type actors in those days. So it was, uh, you know, it was just paradise moving there. And uh, so, uh, and, and eventually I, uh, uh, I, at UCLA, was, uh, I uh, finished UCLA and was waiting for, I decided I'd go into real estate. I was a political science major, but I was sort of turned off by that by the time um, I finished. I didn't want to get into politics. There was an opening uh, at Fox and I, I, in the mailroom, and I took the job, $53 a week. And uh, by the time I, about four days there, I said, oh, God, this is what I want to do. And when I, you know, we take the new scripts around, I started reading them, and I realized, oh, boy, I, I think I, I found it. Because I tried a couple of novels, and I did some, a little bit of stand-up comedy. But when I found the, the, the screenplays, uh, the form, it was, you know, writing what you see and what the audience sees and hears was, uh, you know, something that I loved doing. I started writing scripts in the mailroom between, uh, between runs. So that's, that's how it got started. When you were a kid moving to Beverly Hills and being in that environment and being at uh, your high school where you have all these kind of celebrities around you, were you kind of starstruck? Not really. I mean, I was an altar boy and, uh, at, at Beverly Hills Catholic Church. And I don't know if you remember or if you know about Catholicism, but the, when commun- people would come up to the communion rail, and, and I would, the altar boy would hold a patent, it's called, under the chalice where the communion wafers were held, and you would back up ahead of him, and you didn't see the people who were receiving communion. And I remember the first time I did Sunday Mass in Beverly Hills Catholic School, I moved back and back, and there's Gary Cooper, and then I did another three people, and then it was Dorothy Malone. And all these people, it was just astonishing. So um, that that uh, that was that was a, a real introduction to the to the film business. When you first tried your hand at scripts, what kind of stuff were you trying to write? I wrote a spec script for a TV show that was not on the Fox lot called um, Branded. It was with Chuck Connors, who played a cavalry officer who pretended to be a traitor. And the, the, the opening shot was breaking his sword over their their knee, and he pretended to be a traitor so he could, could go underground. And but basically, I think he was looking for people selling guns and firewater to the Indians. So I wrote a, a, a script, and I can remember that it was like my first pass was 15 pages, and I remember the absolute torture of trying to make it 22 pages long and going back through it several times and. Now, you know, when I write something, it's like 300 pages, and you try to cut it, cut it back down to 100 pages. So it was, it, it, I've always remembered how difficult that was to, to finish that, that script. And nothing came of it, but uh, it was fun to do. What would you consider kind of your first break in the industry? At the Fox lot at that time, uh, Cleopatra had just taken all the funds out of the movie part of it. And it was a place called the New Administration Building. And New meant it was built in 1933. On the top floor were all the producers who were, you know, uh, had a, a deal at the, at the lot, but they weren't doing anything. And about that time, Bill Self and Lillian Gallo took over the TV of 20th Century Fox, and they had 12 O'Clock High and uh, Lost in Space, a little later Green, the Green Hornet with... Uh, Oh, gosh, that wonderful uh, um, 
Chinese actor uh, who became a superstar. Uh, Bruce Lee. Yeah, Bruce Lee. Oh my gosh, I used to we used to hang with him, didn't you, dude? You were, we we were uh, you know so impressed with not as an actor but as a someone who knew kung fu and all that. Television was what was happening there. I went from the the mail room to the story department where I got to read all the scripts and all the coverage of all the movies that had been submitted to Fox since the beginning of time. I had the uh, I found the original submission by Daryl Zanuck on the Lassie uh, story that he submitted to Fox, even though they didn't make it, the borders did. So it was amazing uh, to read all that and read all the new scripts that were being submitted and to read the scripts that were being printed for the, the, the films that were in production. Uh, from there, there was, I read that there was a, you know, there's a, they had to put up things because it was all union, that uh, there was an opening at um, the Peyton Place television show for a script coordinator. Uh, there was like 12 or 13 writers, so each week you had, each writer was given the scene, and, and someone had to put them all together into one piece. Not, nothing creative involved, just uh, you know, mechanically putting it together and getting it over to mimeograph, as we called it in those days, and getting them printed up. So I, I took that job, and uh, about a year later, I was uh, one of the associate producers on the show. We were doing uh, three half hours a week, and there was two units. One of them had... Uh, would shoot uh, two episodes in six days, and I, my unit, the second unit, would catch the actors coming off, becoming available when they had done their work on the first unit, and then we would shoot in the same six days. We would shoot another episode. We had an entire crew standing by a, a good deal of time, and so that was, uh, you know, I ended up doing about uh, 300 episodes of that show, which was. Uh, on three times a week, and a couple of times we were one, two, and three in the ratings, so it was really an extraordinary experience. That must have been yeah. quite a boot camp. Oh, my God. Uh, there was a, a major uh, a person called uh, Everett Chambers, who was the producer, and he had started in the business uh, producing John Cassavetes' uh, films, Too Late Blues, and some of his early stuff, and, and he had a series, I can't recall what it was, Gosh, it was about a piano player, a jazz piano player in New York City who was also a private detective. It was pretty good. And uh, Everett was an extraordinary. He was a, a director himself of, of small films and uh, really a filmmaker. And the it, the education was unbelievable. And, uh, he, he, you know, he gave me a lot of uh, uh, attention in, in helping me get started. In fact, later, when I directed my first movie for uh, Roger, uh, Part of the Duty Nurses, uh, Everett produced it with uh, some of the uh, guys from our units and some of the uh, uh, bunch of really, really interesting young uh, crew people who were in uh, the commercials at that time. So we, uh, you know, it, uh, it was an extraordinary experience, yeah. Yeah, what was that like? What was that like meeting Roger and Gene Corman? Well, Roger, this is an interesting story because, as I said, at that time, the film guys, you know, the producers were on the lot they had a special place for lunch called the gold room. But the, the producers of the TV series who were really keeping the whole lot afloat, uh, weren't allowed in there. So they demanded entrance to that. And they came, we, we got to go to lunch in the gold room. They completely snobbed the TV guys, the old, old timers. I'm not going to give any names, but there was some really classic guys there. They completely snobbed the TV guys. Nobody would speak to us. And then Roger came on the lot and was doing St. Valentine's Day Massacre. 
And most of the people in TV at the time were probably 40 mm-hmm. years old. I was about 20. And they had all had careers in the movie business, but now had fallen into television as, uh, you know, because they weren't exactly successful. So I noticed when Roger came in to, to, to have lunch in the gold room, they, the TV guy snobbed Roger because he was this, you know, we made these tacky little, you know, cheap movies. So there was this multiple layer of that going on. And I knew Roger's movies from drive-ins because I got into, you know, that culture where we'd race and hot rods and go to the movies. So I went over and talked to him and, uh, and he said, well, come down, you know, come down to the set. And I, I did, I observed him down there and I did tell him that they, what was going on. He thought it was hilarious. So uh, that's where I first met him. And then um, after television, I did another series called um, oh, Judd for the Defense as an associate producer and really got sick of television because it was really Kleenex at the time, you know, disposable. You do your half hour and the, the networks didn't care. I do remember that well, we, we wanted to bring a black family into um, the paid in place and they, the networks absolutely refused and the sponsors refused. So Everett and uh, Paul Monash, who was really what would be called a showrunner today, and I and a couple of other uh, the other social producers went down to the networks and had the meeting and and in the meeting both uh, Everett and uh, Paul Monet said to the networks, "Fuck you, we're going to put a black family in there, and if you don't like it, cancel us." And we walked out, and they didn't do a thing, and we did put a black family in there. So it was pretty courageous for them to do that at that time. It's so amazing how things have changed over the years. I mean, just to think yeah. that that was late '60s and. Yeah. What eight years later you got good times? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so uh, yeah, it was amazing to be part of that at the time, and uh, uh, you know, to be so young, and and, uh, and it was so interesting because they were not that much older, but they were all kind of jazz guys, you know, they were hip and all that kind of thing, and we were just rocking a little nuts. When I showed up, I realized, wow, these people are really interested in what I have to say because they didn't know anybody else that was. So I was all over the lot, meeting everybody, telling them this and pitching ideas. And I did sell a couple of, uh, uh, of uh, TV ideas uh, to them. One of them, one of them went to pilot, and the other one, uh, which was a, I was getting a laugh out of this. It's about a uh, private detective who had multiple personality disorder, and he was <laughs> he did his own leg work and everything. I cannot tell you, Michael, how many times I've sold that idea. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I still get, I, I get calls from from people on TV today saying, "Hey, that new thing about the knuckle." <laughs> and they, they don't remember it from '65; they remember it from '85, '95, or, or someplace. But uh, and, and I, I don't. Uh, I'm not really that interested in television just because of the experience I had. I know there's some pretty wonderful stuff going on, but there's some pretty awful stuff going on too. But at least it's. Uh, you know, they're, 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 they're getting the, uh, it's not Kleenex anymore. People are respecting it. So that's kind of cool. But you would go back and do a TV movie a few years later, right? Yeah, I did Hot Rod, which uh, uh, was, was pretty cool. And it's so, it's so interesting. Just recently, I've never I've never seen it with an audience. And the, I've only seen it on TV with commercials. And I, even, even though, you know, I cut it without the commercials, but I, I never really, it was never really presented. So recently... I found the three quarter inch uh, uh, from the from the uh, the broadcast three quarter inch that I had, and I decided to 
see if I could get that transferred to DVD so I could show it at the Oldenburg Film Festival, which I just attended. And I took it over to Photocam, and the genius is over there. The, uh, the first, the first uh, uh, reel uh, worked, and we were able to transfer the second one, snapped in twice. So these guys took it apart, took the, the, the cassette apart, took their machine apart. They, they saved the, everything but a foot and a half of it. And they said, well, we've got one other, there's a, this, this genius up in the hills who, who can save these things. So what he does is really has a, he bakes them, which turn, which, because they, they oxidize from, from the moisture and the, the, the tape sticks together. So he bakes it to a certain degree. And, uh, we took it back to the, to the, um, to Photocam and it worked. They were able to transfer it. So I was able to show that at, at Oldenburg. Yeah, it was really cool. And I really liked it as a movie. And there are, as you know, there's fans of everybody everywhere, but I was stunned to see how many people in Germany knew all the films I'd done, but they had never seen Hot Rod as a movie. So it was amazing. It was a, we had to get a larger theater and, and showed it. And it, was, it just went over beautifully. It was really a thrill. When you first started working with the Cormans, how did you go about that? Were you initially a screenwriter for them, or did you talk about directing right off, or how was that? I had written a screenplay called Carrot Butts, and basically, basically was it was about cartoon characters and real life inter interspersed inter intercut, and the bad guy was uh, Bugs Bunny. And the carrot butts were a clue to who the killer was. And I know the script got to this young director named Steven Spielberg. In the first page, Santa and the reindeer crash and and die. It was a a little crazy stuff. And all I heard from the agent was that Steven read the first page and threw it across the room. So so that was was my... And since then, uh, we talked and had a big laugh. And my granddaughter was working for him for quite a while. As in casting, so uh, we made up, but uh, I, I always found that kind of interesting. Anyway, I got that script to Roger, and he really liked it, and he tried to get it made at, uh, I think it was United Artists where he had a deal. Um, they didn't, they were a little bit, they didn't know how to do animation and uh, live action simultaneously, and I didn't either, but uh, they said it was a great script. Is there anything else I would do, like to do? And Roger had a project where he wanted, uh, he was just about, he just got into, into the, the hippie thing. This would have been 67, uh, after Monterey pop that summer, uh, he was getting into it. I think he'd had his first acid trip, which was interesting. He did for the movie, um, the trip. I, I gave him that script. He liked it. He wanted to do it. He couldn't. Then he said, listen, I want to do a thing. I want to do a movie about, uh, where everybody over, I think, I think he was 25 or 30. I've noticed in some things over the year, I, I, I confuse whether it was 25 or 30, but I think it was everybody over the age of 25 dies from a, a, a gas, and the kids take over the world and, uh, you know, go out. So I wrote that script. It's called Gas, right? You directed it. I was in it, and uh, we had uh, Bud Court and uh, Cindy Williams and Talia Shire and Ben Vereen. We went and made that in New Mexico and Texas in 1969, so... That's how I got started with Roger, and, and Gene was a producer on it, but uh, he wasn't terribly involved. Gene I met um, during that time, and we did, uh, I did 
of the private duty nurses for Roger. And then after that, Roger, uh, Gene wanted to do Hitman. He sent me a script without, without a, uh, a, a cover, a title page on it, and I had not seen uh, Get Carter. It was it was Get Carter, and he wanted me to do it as a, uh, a black film, and uh, it was became Hitman. And uh, I heard later through one of the editor of, of the film that uh, I, I believe it was Michael Hodges who directed uh, Get Carter, uh, said that I was uh, knocking him off shot by shot. And actually, I had for that reason I have never seen. Get Carter, and never will. But I understand it was quite a good movie, but uh, I, I didn't realize it. And I said, Gene, I, I finally sent it over to my agent, and he said, Hey, this is Get Carter. And I said, Gene, how about telling me? Hey, come on. He said, Well, you wouldn't have done it if I thought because Get Carter was made a year before. I thought that was a little early for a you know a knockoff. But anyway, uh, I, I uh, directed that and had an extraordinary time with the uh, with the cast. Yeah, what was it like working with Bernie Casey in those days? Oh, wonderful. Boy, I've had, you know, I've had the most amazing experience. All of the actors, the lead actors I've worked with are were absolutely brilliant. I mean, Bernie is sensationally smart and wonderful. And with Bernie, I decided that, well, one of the reasons I did um, Hitman is because uh, Roger wanted me to do another nurse movie, and I just couldn't bear to do it. I wrote this script, but uh, Jonathan Kaplan ended up uh, directing and did a great job. I really liked the movie. Um, uh, well, I can't remember the title. Oh, gosh. Mm. Mm. Uh, but, um, so I wanted to get out of that. So I, I did Hitman and I really, after I finished it and I really said, you know, there should be a, a director should be black. There's, there's, you know, this isn't right. And so Bernie was, uh, said he would like to direct it. And, uh, Gene took that to, uh, UA and they said, well, you know, we love him, but, uh, he hasn't directed, and we don't. We're afraid to go with a, you know, a first-time director. So they were going to not not do the shoot. And Bernie called me and said, "Come on, direct it. Let's, you know, I want to. We've got a lot of people. We don't want you to beat. And uh, it could be in this movie. I think it's a good script. So I did direct it, and uh, it was an extraordinary experience. I had after Beverly Hills, I moved to uh, the U Park, uh, the Mert Park section of Los Angeles, which is a racially mixed neighborhood, and. Uh, got to know a lot of, and had a lot of black friends and they were really helpful to me and, uh, and, and getting it together to do the film. And, uh, the actors were incredibly supportive and it was an extraordinary experience. And, uh, um, they, they always be grateful for it. And uh, I still try Gene when I see him about, uh, sending me the title page <laughs> to get better, but, uh, it was great. It was a great experience. Yeah, I was so happy to see uh, Paul Gleason show up in that one, since I'm oh, so familiar yeah. with uh, Miami yeah. Blues. Yeah, and he was in uh, Private Duty Nurses too. He uh, he was the uh, he was uh, one of the uh, brain surgeons in there. I've been working with him for a long time. So interesting. Two things I was thinking about because you mentioned that this is sort of Hitman um, uh, sort of uh, prompted this uh, interview, but. Um, and, and also, since I've just seen every film and every moment of everything I've, I've ever done at Oldenburg, uh, you know, you, you wanted to expand it a little bit. But one of the most interesting things that ever happened to me was after Hitman, I got a call from a, a gentleman who was the head of the Black Studies program at uh, Howard University. And he was uh, also a, a fan of, of the black the black exploitation films, as it was known. And he interviewed me, and we went on for about 30 minutes, and he finally said, 
wait a minute, you're not black. And I said, Woody Allen, eat your heart out. I mean, this is, <laughs> he would have died for that moment. I said, oh, I said, you, do I sound, <laughs> do I sound a little uptown? I mean, it was very, very funny. It was an amazing moment. I was, I mean, I was absolutely thrilled that uh, somehow I passed for black, even though, you know, he, did, he didn't see me. And the funniest thing happened today my uh, daughter-in-law sent me a message and she had been taking my grandson, Nick, down to UC Irvine. Uh, he's a senior in, in high school and he's picking his college. And the person who was taking him around, he looked at both the art school and the humanities because the film department is on, in the, under the humanities at, uh, at UCI, which I think is wonderful. And um, she was taking him around and said, gee, we were she was talking about movies they had screened in, in, a, in a radical cinema class. And she said, we just saw a fabulous movie called Hitman. And he went, oh, my grandfather directed that. Now, they didn't think, they didn't think I was black, but I thought, oh, my gosh. And it just happened today. So I, was, uh, I, I did contact the, uh, the professor, and I haven't heard back from him, but I would like to give him a shout-out. His name is Soheil Dalatsai. And uh, I, I'm, I'm just thrilled that uh, he uh, he included it in, in radical cinema class. I just can't get over the level of actors that are in that film. So many great, oh. great people. Oh, absolutely! The beautiful, wonderful. Oh, what a great cast! They were so incredible. This is where I I, I think I ad libbed one line, like an actor in Private Duty. Uh, you know, I, I, I was at that stage where writers get to, and thank God I got over it quickly, where, you know, when you write a screenplay, you hear exactly what it sounds like in your head, and then you go to direct it, and nobody, <laughs> obviously nobody, no two people are alike, and then you begin to think directing is getting them to say it exactly as you'd written it. And as soon as you realize to explain to them how to get them becomes this deceitful kind of thing to make it sound like yours, and you're not really directing. So I finally said, oh, I can't do that. So I began to cast and get people who came in and read who I thought were better, that sounded better than what I had, had written in my head. That way, uh, and it's so many of the, of the casting, um, so much of the, of the material, the dialogue, the ideas in uh, Hitman are from the cast coming up to me and and uh, telling me this is the way it would sound, and this, and this is what they were saying on the street. And it was just incredible. And fortunately, I was able to, uh, you know, give up on what I thought it would sound like and go with what they were doing. And that's, that's something I've done in all the pictures now with actors, is, is look for someone who really brings something new to it to me and let them, uh, you know, and cast them and then let them go and encourage them. Some actors, uh, like Morgan Freeman, uh, absolutely stuck to the script as it was written impeccably. I was honored with that. And uh, Owen Wilson is, uh, you know, he'll no two a lot, no two things alike. And to put Owen and Morgan Freeman, and this is in uh, Big Bounce together, and see Morgan, who is absolutely impeccable with the script, relating to the Owen going off was just absolutely fabulous uh, stuff that. Uh, that occurred, and I've always done that. But you know, if the actors have a good idea, go with it. Like, you know, like we were saying, there's always editorial too. That's that's sort of the way I've done things. Now I know that Hitman is very well respected today. How was it received when it came out? Pretty good reviews. Not particularly 
didn't have the uh, same, wasn't as well known as several of the other pictures. I can't recall some of the titles now, but that were around. Uh, and uh, I've kind of read recently about it that it was sort of disappeared and stuff. So, so uh, I, it, it, you know, it was, I could see it with a black audience at a theater in, the, in my old neighborhood, uh, the Baldwin Hills, which was an extraordinary experience to, to go back to the theater, you know, that in my neighborhood theater and to see a film I'd made in a really racially mixed neighborhood was really extraordinary. It didn't, you know, it wasn't, it didn't, it made, certainly made money because we made it, I think, for 250000 and it did well, and the reviews were pretty good all over, but uh, nothing, uh, it, it really didn't, uh, you know, it really wasn't that noticed. And at the time, you know, the pictures were not considered, uh, you know, anything but uh, exploitation and drive-in fodder, so it wouldn't be, I suppose, wouldn't it be inner-city fodder for... Uh, hitman but it wasn't particularly uh noticed i did talk to mike hodges yesterday actually and he says that he hasn't seen the remake of get carter but he has seen hitman and enjoys it quite a bit oh you did oh good oh good oh there oh that's right there was a remake of get carter wasn't there yeah yeah that's uh, warner brothers did that and i remember oh kevin thomas's review in the la times said that uh, uh he mentioned hitman as uh as, uh, oh, he did, and he did. He like it. He didn't. Uh, he didn't suggest that it was a, 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 a scene by scene knockoff. No, he said he liked it a lot. Oh, good. Maybe I, well, I should probably apologize. Maybe I'll go see it. Maybe I'll go see Get Carter now and send him a note. Oh, I, oh I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Is he a pretty good guy? Yeah, yeah, very nice guy. Oh, great. Well, I think I owe him an apology then. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do that. I wanted to ask you about Darktown Strutters. Were you going to direct that at one point, or was that just a screenplay gig for you? Uh, I think I was going to direct that, but I forget what came up. You know, I uh, I had a, a, a script that, uh, that I'd written called Trophy about uh, two police departments who get in a shooting war. <laughs> you know, it's so current for right now. In fact, I'm going to read that. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to make it work for today, because of what's going on with the police in there all over the country. And, the, and basically the premise of the new one, would, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to your, your question, but the, basically the premise of the new one would be that there are good cops, a lot of good cops, and they're allowing the bad cops because of the blue code to behave the way they do, murdering people all over the country. So I'm trying to put that together again. But anyway, trophy is what I was trying to do. Uh, I never did get that off the... the, the uh, the, the uh, uh, didn't, never did get that made, but I did get a friend of mine, um, Joe Viola, to direct, uh, to, uh, hired as a director. But there was a really serious accident on the set, and he was really upset by the whole thing, so he left the picture. And Gene brought in William Whitney, who had done all the uh, uh, Roy Rogers films, and uh, I, I, he, he came in. I thought he did a very good job. I do remember though, Gene thought it needed some. Uh, extra uh, punching up. And so we had a screening and we invited, invited Richard Pryor to it. And about three quarters of the way through, I looked down on the floor and Richard Pryor was crawling up the, <laughs> the aisle and he get abandoned the I think he said, gee, I don't think he's going to probably do this. You know, so uh, <laughs> it was very funny. And I went outside later and he was driving off at his car and it was like, <laughs> I, okay, I get it. You know, care for it. But, uh, 
interestingly, that, that script was written in three days by me, and it's one long sentence. There's no breaks. It's, it just goes into dialogue and out, and it's, uh, it's just one long sentence. So it was kind of an experimental thing to do. But I did really enjoy it. I, I really did like it. I thought he did a good job. And uh, Roger Mosley was in it, and I thought it was pretty good. Uh, I liked it. I thought it was goofy. Yes, so goofy and so fun. It is one of those movies where I just was completely gobsmacked the first time that I saw it. Just some of those surreal touches like that police car with that huge light on the top. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I I really enjoyed seeing it. Yeah, it, it was a hoot. Yeah, it would have been fun to do, but uh, I, I, I was trying to get trophy made, but it didn't work. Uh, was it Actually, I sold it to Warner Brothers at the time, and did a rewrite for a producer. Uh, oh gosh, I can't remember his name. Uh, and uh, I didn't like the rewrite, and uh, it just fell apart. But uh, I never give up. I'm, I'm still uh, trying to figure out a way to get it made. Can you tell me what was it like working with Christopher Joy? Oh, I love him dearly. Oh, what a sweetheart! What a lovely, lovely man, and so generous and so. I mean, they were so sweet to me. You know. Uh, you know, the hair down to my you know, waist and hippie crazy days and, and the whole thing. They were just so uh, just so delightful. Chris was wonderful. Everybody was great. It was uh, it was just extraordinary. I just I hadn't seen it in a long time. I hadn't seen it in an audience with an audience of like about seventy two. What's that? Twenty eight and fifteen forty three years. And to see it at um, Oldenburg, it was it was really wonderful. I, I really enjoyed it, and the audience was. Uh, it did too. So, and to see all the actors again, but I was one thing, and I don't know where my brain was at the time. I was astonished at how gorgeous Pam Greer is in that movie. Oh my God. Oh, and she was so wonderful too. She was, she sent me the most adorable note afterwards saying how much I'd helped her with her acting and all that stuff. I was really, I just adored her. The whole cast was sensational. And I, it was just a, a labor of love. Yeah, the chemistry between Christopher Joy and Roger Mosley in Hitman was terrific. I loved every time those guys were on screen. Oh, weren't they? Well, oh, they were fabulous together. Just fabulous. Oh, God. And so many others that were, were, so, were so good in that film. I, I really, uh, we had Godfrey and Cambridge, who was uh, probably the most uh, uh, well-known um, at, uh, acting coach for uh, in, in black theater. And he brought us his favorite people and the best actors he could find. And, and he was in it. He was the father of, uh, he was the, you know, the fellow who was lynched in the, uh, in the, uh, theater. Right. Oh God. Which was such a, just the way that you shot that, the way that it was a reveal that he was, uh, uh being hanged there was just terrific. Oh yeah. You know, I, I, it was so hard. It was, oh, I just, why did I, in the morning of that, I said, oh, why did I do this? It's such a horrible uh, visual feel for, for black actors. But right. he was so, he said, no, 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 this is it. And he said, look, if you're going to hang me, I want you to show my feet. That's how everybody knows I'm not standing on a ladder. I thought, oh, my God, they're <laughs> really into it. That was fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. So we did. And uh it was emotionally one of the hardest days I've ever had as a director, and I think it was very, very hard on the cast as well. Not, not, not that they were angry; they understood what we were doing. They understood the, the iconography of the moment, but uh, 
it was it was an extraordinarily difficult thing. And uh, without if one of them had said, "I can't, we can't do this," I they, I would have called it off, and we would have done something else. But they said, "No, this is important. We, we want this imagery in the moment." The level of catharsis that you attain in that film, too, just the taking care of all the bad guys with those uh, machine guns, just mm. really drives it home. And it's uh, really great, great scenes there. Yeah, it was amazing, I and mean, everything was one take because uh, we couldn't reload in those days, you know, and do it all over and redress everyone. I, I was a little upset at the uh, screening in, in Oldenburg when I realized that the, <laughs> the blood looked more like Sherwin Williams' uh, uh, <laughs> red trim than blood, but uh, uh, it, uh, it, it it was uh, it, it was amazing too because there were black people. Who live in Germany came to that screening just to see it, and they were absolutely loved it. Thought it was a fabulous film, and they were very, very helpful. You know, afterwards, uh, I introduced it up front, and then uh, take questions, and and we got we we spent you know usually it's about fifteen minutes, and thank you, we we went about forty five minutes to, or, and everybody asking questions, and it was really a sensational feeling to to be able to. You know, to go to live through that again. What was the reaction to, for the audience when they saw Miami Blues? Um, not that good. I mean, it was very good, but I don't think they got the nuances as well as uh, American audiences did. They they liked it, and they didn't quite. And it was subtitled, and I, um, yeah, it was subtitled. It, 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 you know, and um, I was fascinated by the. The level of the subtitles were unbelievable. I, I, I think the minutiae they went into. I, I mean, I didn't. I don't speak German, but I could see what they were doing, and it was oh, was it astonishing? And I, and I said, the question I asked them afterwards was, uh, they well, the, the, the head of the, the director of the festival said, you know, you're in northern Germany, they're very shy. They're not going to, if you go up there and say, are there any questions? You'll never get questions. So I. Uh, you know, I, I, you have to start talking and finding somebody to raise their hand and stuff. So uh, um, they didn't. Quite, I don't think they quite got the humor, but they liked the movie. But they, they, they the laughter wasn't there as it is when uh, you know, screen for a, a, an English-speaking audience. But they seemed to enjoy it. Um, you know, and uh, and I know one one person came up to me afterwards. This beautiful German woman, blonde lady, must be in there. Mid thirties, and she was crying. She liked it so much. Was so I thought, oh, you know, I I I wasn't sure. You know, you don't get people coming up to you crying, and I was a little, what's this? And but she was so she just said she loved it so much. So that was really nice. I showed that movie in New York uh, a couple years ago. Uh, there was a screening at the ninety two Y down near Tribeca. Yeah, and. People came up to me afterwards and thanked me for showing that film just because they had never seen it before, weren't familiar with it at all, and just absolutely ate it up. Yeah, I think it's my favorite. I it, it, it just works so beautifully. I remember Jonathan, when I turned the script into him, said, this is the best script I've read in 10 years. And, you know, you don't really know that. I mean, I don't even, you know, you, you think, well, this is good, I like it, I think this is what I like. But you don't really know that. And, 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 and both uh, Jennifer and... Uh, and, and Alex said uh, it was a great script, too. They liked it that much. And uh, a huge Williford fan, as you know. And uh, unfortunately, he had passed away before that. And um, I, I know Betsy was a little... I think the problem was, that, you know, it was about Hoke. 
in, in the book. And we sort of, you know, I just felt right that it'd be hoax. But and in the books, too, the four that are uh, hoax, the psychopath who enters each of them is fascinating. That's what we felt. And Alec was so good. And although I never quite got the feeling that he fully understood what we were doing, but he was so good and so wonderful in it. Uh, we, I'm sort of, I really like understating, uh, if I can, without being, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, freezing the frame. Um, and he's a little bit larger than that. And fortunately he did that. He would, he'd do that. And then we do, we do a couple of different takes of different ways, but I was so glad that he had been a little bit larger than I normally like. And even though at times we didn't use it, he, it's, it would appear, I think overstating is uh, sometimes it can be confused with commenting on the characters and commenting on the film. So I'm very wary of that, but he was wonderful. And uh, I think he really helped with the humor of the piece more than, more than uh, it would have if it, if it had been as, as uh, understated as I like. You're totally right as far as the psychopaths. I mean, that was mm. Wilfred's specialty, was writing yeah. those psychopaths. Yeah, his description of a psychopath is perfect. It's uh, uh, it's in the opening of Sideswipe, I believe. He says, he quotes the, the principal character, I know the difference between right and, right and wrong, I just don't give a shit. And that's <laughs> the perfect... Of it. And uh, I know everybody, it's, it's sociopath today, but... Uh, you know, if you're in the movie business, you're not going to call it a sociopath. Psychopath is such a better, you know, it's such a, it's such a good movie word, even though it's, it's, uh, it's passe at the moment. But uh, Was the film one of those uh, victims of the whole Orion kind of going under? No, it, it got good reviews. I, you know, I don't want to pick on, uh, on, on uh, people who sell movies, but boy, some of them really, uh, uh, you know, have a really hard time selling something that's uh, that, uh, hard, selling something that's uh, difficult to sell. You know, they just they want the they want the stuff that's easy for them. So, something like that, they really have a tough time with the, trying to decide. Because I, I hadn't thought of it, but uh, do you remember a critic named Stuart Byron? I think so. The name sounds familiar. Yeah, Village Voice. He's since passed away. He was a dear friend. I screened it here in L.A., and he came up to me and he said, oh, my God, we haven't had a film like that, like this since the 40s, since noir, and where the, where the principal character is, a, is a, a psychopath. And I hadn't even thought of that because I thought of it simply as noir, but uh, I see it being called sunshine noir now from time to time when they refer to it, which is kind of interesting. But um, it didn't strike me as being anything unusual. I don't know why. I, I, I hadn't thought of that myself. So I was, uh, I was a bit whoa. I thought, you know, I was taken aback when Stuart mentioned that. I was so glad to see uh, your co-producer Kenneth Ott show up. Oh um, yeah, he always had such a great face. Isn't that a great face? Wasn't he wonderful as the uh, the Krishna guy there? He was perfect. Oh, lovely. And what a wonderful production person. Oh, my God. What, I, Jonathan's crews and people that he, he shared with me were so were really wonderful. Although I'd worked with Tack before. He was a, a cameraman on um, Hitman. Tack Fujimoto, he was the operator on Hitman, Andy Davis, uh, who was a brilliant cinematographer, 
was uh, and a wonderful director was uh, uh, was the cinematographer on that, and uh, that that was a treat. Now, was there talk about doing more hoax stuff after that one? Yeah, um, in fact, my uh, my son wrote a script on Sideswipe, and um, it just didn't happen. Um, that, that the script was pretty good, but there was um, you know Gary Getzman who was really really probably principally responsible for uh, getting uh, uh, Miami Blues made. Uh, he, he runs Tom Hanks' company now. He he really took it around to try to get it made, but it, it just never happened. And uh, the film, though, uh, was very, very good for me. So, uh, you know, I got a lot of, you know, I was able to go pitch things and get development deals and do rewrites and stuff, and, you know, well, between pictures and uh so uh, yeah, yeah, I, I was very successful, but uh, um, and it did make money. I think all of my pictures have made money, uh, except uh, the big bounce, which is another story altogether. But uh, um, I mean, they, they they pay for themselves. How did you come to do the adaptation of the Late Shift? I had a friend, I have a friend who was a, a a big Orange County car dealer. And he was invited to the Lillehammer Olympics in 1990. It was a real strange thing coming at this story. And so he said, hey, you want to go to the Olympics? I said, yeah, yeah. So we flew over. And oh, my God, I can't think of the fellow's name. One of the characters in the book, Rod somebody, he's a redheaded guy. He was actually in the movie, in the TV show, in, the, in the, the TV movie. Rod Perth, maybe? Yes. Yes. Excellent. And he was uh, on board, and he was sat with him, and he was talking about. I think, I think I'd read the book. No, maybe I didn't. But he was talking about that whole thing, and I was a huge late night fan. Even as a kid, like on Friday nights, I would get to stay up and see uh, when Steve Allen was doing the show, and then Jack Parr. And I remember when I was traveling around the country in '62, we, we, uh, a friend of mine, we went to where. Uh, uh, that, who would that have been in 62? I think it was Jack Parr. It was before Johnny, I think. And uh, we tried to sneak in, and I remember a comedian, he was like, I, I know that every, Sinatra called him Fat Jack. I can't think of his last name, Jack somebody, but a wonderful, wonderful comedian, a real fast talker. Uh, and uh, he, he tried to sneak us in to see uh, the, the Tonight Show, but we got caught by... Uh, by the, uh, uh, I forget what they call them, but they, they all became the superstars later, the guys with the outfits on, with, uh, the ushers or something, I guess they call them, or whatever it was. But they had uniforms in those days. But they all, it was sort of a training program, so we got caught and thrown out, But uh, so I never did get to see it. But I loved uh, the show, and I liked uh, Letterman, uh, I think it was probably my favorite uh, of, the, of all the hosts, although they, they were all good. Uh, Le- there was a time there when Letterman did four nights a week and Leno did one night a week. I think it was, I think it was really the best to, cause when Leno did one night a week, he was brilliant. And, uh, later I didn't care for him too much, but, um, Rod Perth got me interested when I came back, they had, uh, HBO had liked, um, let's see, had I done, I don't know if I'd done, uh, let's see, when would that be? I don't think I'd done, um, Gross Point Blank yet. No, it was just Miami Blues, but HBO really liked it. They had sent me stuff to do, so I, I went over and talked to them, and uh, and uh, you know, and here's my take, and uh, I uh, I wrote the script, and my my script was uh, we 
way out there and bizarre and crazy. And they brought uh, uh, Bill Carter, who wrote the book and was the uh, TV critic for the New York Times at the time. And they brought him back in to make it <laughs> kind of what they wanted to do. And I thought he did a really good job. And uh, But uh, I, I know that Letterman got a hold of my script and thought it was fantastic. I mean, it was pretty bizarre. I had uh, Howard Godfrey, who was uh, the head of Sush, uh, where was he at the time? I guess that was CBS. I thought if that's the right name. And he was um, he was in Norway, and uh, he, um, gosh, I forget what the, uh, you know, hmm, talking about, we're talking about doing it, but uh, he it was, it was very interesting. But, uh, oh, I had him as Dave Stalker. Uh, you remember Dave Stalker? So, I, you know, I sort of, Twisted thing, you know, it's kind of, it was good. I, but uh, I know Letterman loved the script, and uh, so I, I felt uh, good about that. Yeah, he was so good when he was on. He was just amazing. Yeah, that was great. I remember him in daytime, uh, way way back. My son and I was very, very little at the time. We'd watch it in the summer. The first time I remember seeing him was when he was in uh, Mork and Mindy for about five minutes. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> he was. Uh, a disciple of Exodor in one episode. <laughs> wow, that's a, I'd love to get a hold of that episode. I, I'll I'll do some work on that. That that that'd be amazing. Wow, I wish oh boy, I wish I'd have known that. I would have thrown that. I'd definitely thrown that into the mix. <laughs> that would have been excised immediately. But you, know. you kind of have some uh, Detroit connections going on with your the last couple films here with uh, Gross Point Blank and The Big Bounce because The Big Bounce that's a uh, Elmore Leonard, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Hometown hero. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, there is. A, you know, I saw my business manager just sent me a thing uh, some, from somewhere. I forget. And it, it, all the states, uh, and it was a list of all the states and the best movies ever made in that state. And they listed Gross Point Blank as the best Michigan movie ever even though we only shot about uh, 38 seconds in, in uh, along the uh, the highway when the drive-in from the helicopter. And actually, one of, one of the Detroit, I think we talked about this before, one of the Detroit papers said how extraordinary that how that we shot the film there and, and they don't remember seeing any trucks or any... Uh, <laughs> and we actually, we tried, because we, what we would have had to do was winter was coming on and... Uh, Everybody kind of wanted to shoot there in the snow, and I said, "These people don't have high school reunions in the snow." I mean, that's usually right. you know, you know, you, you you have them around the time of the real high school graduations, you know, maybe May or something like that. So we uh, decided to shoot, let's go, let's shoot it in L.A. And we, Stephen Altman, um, went back to Gross Point and and uh, and Detroit and, and looked around, and uh, he went uh, and found amazing places here that could pass. I remember at one time, it was so, and I went back to uh, several times and just met the people. And, and I loved Detroit, by the way, but I was there in 62. It was so amazing. We got a little bit tipsy when we were going into Canada and ended up driving back into Michigan. <laughs> and the, the guards there, what? what? Get out of here. Turn around and go. Get, you know, they were fabulous. But uh, so I, I had a great time, and we had a great time with the couple of days we were there. I just, I, I adore Detroit and Detroiters, so it was really cool. But I was amazed that it was the best Michigan movie. I, I can't think of any others offhand. I'm sure there were plenty. Yeah, Elmore was not pleased with uh, 
with the um, big bounce, but uh, I, I was able to send him my cut, and he did see that, and he said, well, this is a hell of a lot better. And remember, it had been made once before at uh, Fox when I was there uh, in on Peyton Place with Ryan O'Neill and Lee Taylor Young, his wife at the time. And it was uh, not well received. And he, he, I remember one of the quotes from, from Elmore before he passed away was, I thought, um, what did he say? I thought the version of Big Bounce was the worst movie I ever saw, but this new one is even worse. So I was pretty upset. I was upset with that, but uh, unfortunately, the, the decision was made, not by the producer or me, to make it a uh, PG-13 instead of an R, and it just took everything out of it. But um, I have screened it. Uh, we did have a, a double secret screening at uh, Oldenburg, and people really encouraged me to try to, you know, because we'd only had one preview, and you forget because you spend most of the time in those first previews trying to get rid of the bad stuff. So <clears throat> we didn't really know what you know. You didn't really know fully then what 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 it was, and. When they asked me to do PG-13, I said, that's absolutely ridiculous. It's going to destroy the movie, and I'm not going to be part of it. So I left the film, and they released it, and it was uh, absolutely, you know, as I thought, it was a PG-13. It just didn't work at all. But uh, I'm going to try to get it um, a director's cut. Uh, the producer was so extraordinary, Steve Bing, uh, and he just listened to the wrong people, and I don't blame him. He put up his own money, and he had about $70 million into it, and in, uh, in budget and P&A, and he just felt uh, that uh, that that was the best way to get a return on it, but it just absolutely destroyed the movie. So uh, I'm hopeful of getting a uh, director's cut uh, someday because I was encouraged. We showed it to critics and uh, and, and um, other film directors who were there, and they all they were stunned by the uh, um, the relationship between uh, Sarah and uh, and Owen. And, uh, yeah, I had forgotten how good that was and how hard we'd work to make that work. So I'm going to try to get a, a, uh, a director's cut on, uh, on Blu-ray at some point and, uh, let's see how that goes. Yeah. It sounds like you still have a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of reworks of some older scripts, some new scripts that are kind of, you know, coming to the fore. What, what kind of stuff are you working on? Two things that interest me now is, uh, are you familiar with the term agnotology? I can't say that I am. It's um, it's the study of the cultural production of ignorance. It really started with the tobacco companies when they were trying to, do, uh, when the scientists were saying, "Listen, can't, uh, cigarettes are causing cancer." They went nuts, and they didn't d- d- dispute any of the scientific evidence. They just attacked the scientists, and you see that going on now with climate change and and everything else that uh, you know that that uh, they don't agree. So I'm looking for a format to try to uh, put that together into a film. And I'm also working on some other projects. Uh, but mostly what I've been doing for the last several years is uh, script doctoring. That's really more budget doctoring. Uh, somebody has a script and they have a, a you know, the 25 million to make it and their budget comes in at 30 and they want somebody to talk to the director and, and show them how to make it for 25. And the first thing I say is, listen, You'll be with 50 years from now. You'll be sitting around pissing and moaning that you didn't get it made. So the first thing you got to do is get this made because it's a good script. And I show them how to cut. It's basically days. You have to take it. You know that's basically where you start. And then sometimes there's actor carries and and, and too many casts. And you can combine things and so on. So there's little things, but it's mostly about showing them how to do the rewrite to to make you know instead of putting 
you know, if I've got five scenes to play at a house, take the best stuff from one of the two other scenes and put it into that and show them how to do that. And then, you know, if they don't like it, they don't have to do it. In but I do try to encourage them to do everything they can to get it made. That's really what I try to do. So I've been doing that for a while. Yeah, I, I hope to do at least one more film, so I'm, I'm still working on that, and hopefully something comes up. But uh, in the meantime, I've always spent time between pictures, and I've, I've kind of enjoyed it, and uh, gives me a lot of freedom to investigate and do research and, and, and write a lot. So, you know, I've got, a, I've got hundreds of, uh, of scripts downstairs. So, uh, in fact, I'm in the process now of uh, trying to convert typed scripts from... 20, 30 years ago, before we had, you know, we both put them on discs and everything uh, and converted to a file that I can rewrite. Yeah, not a PDF, because you can't rewrite that, but somehow, and I've got an IT guy working on it, so if if I can come up with something, I'm going to pass it along to all the other writers out there who are, you know, my age. I'm like, it's not something I want to make any money on. I just want to make sure that they can understand the process and, and probably take a script that... Uh, you know, they've loved, but uh, it needs work. And it's so much easier to, to rewrite than just taking a page and starting fresh. You, to get into the, the to the file, to the script itself is so much, uh, it, you know, you can do 50 passes uh, instead of two or three like we used to be able to do. So that's what I'm working on, too. When it came to showing all of your movies at Oldenburg, what was that experience like for you? And what was kind of the, the moment where you found yourself being the most proud of some of your work. When you preview a film that's not done for an audience, there is nothing more terrifying, but kind of wonderfully terrifying. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think it's, oh God, you, you can't sleep for days, but you're just dying to show somebody. I had that experience all over again in the, 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 the terror of it. And I'm not much of I'm, I'm not really a public person. I I don't have I've never I've never had a publicist or done anything like that. And I, I'm I'm not one who's you know goes to I've invited many times for screen life film and and talk and stuff. I just I just don't do it. it just, I don't know why. But I really enjoyed doing that there. Uh, I, you know, after a while, I, I, I really got good at it. I, I tried to be just relaxed and try to be a little funny and not too pretentious or anything like that. So it was really extraordinary. And then to see all these films together, because I, for instance, Miami Blues, I, I went 15 years without seeing it. And I, I screened it maybe three or four years ago for myself. And I, I it was like seeing somebody else's movie. It was wonderful. I really had a good time. And to see seven or eight films that I've done, including Gas, which I wrote but not was in, but uh, Roger directed, uh, to see these films, uh, it gradually became really wonderful because there, there were people who knew, you know, there's as I said, there's there's fans of everybody somewhere in the world of a film, and they they you know they that's one of the reasons they asked me to be there because I did have a group of people who followed my movies in Germany, so. It was fun, and then to see it with an audience again, it was really sensational. So uh, I got over that terror of uh, you know speaking about it, and uh, and really enjoyed it. And uh, I've been invited recently to do some other stuff here. Uh, do you know Hadrian Bilo? Oh yeah, over at the Cine Family. Yeah. So he's been trying to get me to do things. So I think I'm going to uh, 
uh, probably uh, do something with him. And uh, I met a wonderful director in uh, in Germany, and I've been looking at his films. He's an American from uh, Brooklyn who, who went to uh, Germany, married a German woman, and he does uh, uh, low-budget German films and television over there. His name is Buddy Giovanazzo, and I'm hoping, and he's a friend of Hadrian's, and I'm hoping that I can talk to Hadrian and I can... Um, get him to run one of his movies and I would like to introduce it. So I'm trying to do that. But really a, a, a find. Oh my God, what a wonderful director. And uh, he is really, um, well, well, buddy, why did you go? Why did you go to Berlin? He said, it just happened. And I met my wife. And uh, so uh, yeah, hopefully that'll be, but I, I feel more at ease now with going out and, uh, and uh, screening the films and, and taking questions and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, I ever did. Well, that's great. I hope that uh, something comes together with the Sino family because they really seem to treat you know things the right way and oh. just have a, such a love for film. And yeah. always makes me jealous sitting over here in Detroit and reading about their screenings. But yeah, one of these days I'll get out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope you do. And please, please, please be in touch with me when you do. You, you have an open invitation anytime to uh, come out and hang. I think he was taken out. Taken out? You've got trouble. What do you think you're going to do? Come in here and fix things? You don't fix things, Jack. You break things. Try to do something right. Once. Wait a minute, Jack. All of a sudden, what are you saying? I'm a good guy. You're the bad brother, remember? I know who I am. Let it go. No. I don't think so. Let me tell you something, Jack. I think you should take a, a very big moment. Think about where you are. Say, Jack, when I said you take care of the business or the business will take care of you, did we have a bad connection on the cell? Jack, will you listen to me? You get mixed up in whatever it was your brother was into, you've got a pretty good chance to winding up exactly the same as he did. You want to do this little dance here for old time's sake, Jack? Then bring it. You're a big man. But you're out of shape with me. It's a full-time job. Sylvester Stallone. Miranda Richardson. 
Cook. Alan Cumming. Mickey Rourke. And Academy Award winner, Michael Caine. Getting yourself killed won't bring Richie back. Revenge doesn't work. Sure it does. You've been a pretty bad guy, Mr. Carter. You haven't seen bad yet. All right, we are back and we are talking about Get Carter. Now, while Hitman was not necessarily a remake in name of Get Carter, it was definitely a little bit more close to the source material than the next film that we're going to talk about, which is the 2000 Get Carter. Just to avoid confusion, I just want to say that when we talk about this, we should either say the Stallone Get Carter or Get Carter 2000 when we're referring to this one. So let's talk about Get Carter 2000, which I think I saw at the theater, and I liked it a lot the first time I saw it, and I even bought the soundtrack for it. Uh, And I think that I like this one, uh, though not necessarily as much as the original. Maitland, what did you think of it? Okay, I hated Get Carter 2000 because, to me, it flies in the face of everything that is really kind of great about Get Carter 1971, in that it really is a story of a bad man who redeems himself. And that's not really the Get Carter story. The Get Carter story is a story about a bad man for whom there is no redemption. And yet you have a certain sympathy or empathy for him anyway. I I think Get Carter 2000 is a way easier movie. That mirrors my thoughts. I will say the aesthetic look of the movie is not very good either. It's just kind of like very, what would, like, what would maybe 10 years ago, it's kind of passe to say it now, maybe 10 years ago it would be considered MTV editing or what have you. But yeah, she's, uh, Maitland's absolutely right. It works as the way it's portrayed in the original, not so much a, a, good, a bad guy making good and stuff. It's, uh, it just doesn't work that way. There's a scene, which I guess we should praise it for being a little different, but there's a scene when uh, in the wake of Frank is, is it Frank in the uh, in the remake his brother whatever uh, he, he's in his brother's funeral or the wake rather and the whole family's there and Carter uh, Stallone's Carter is like interrogating people like kind of strong arming people to, to get question answers out of them and at one point the wife of the of the deceased comes to him and says uh, Jack not now not not here and he just stops. And like almost like an obedient dog, and that just doesn't scream the character to me. That's uh, if if somebody would have told Jack that in the original, he would have walked him across the head. It's uh, there's just something wrong about it. Yeah, I, I think he's kind of nailed it there. He, he's just a different. He's a different Carter, and not not the Carter who makes get Carter so astonishing. Frankly, he's just another in a long line of movie characters who have done some bad things and now they want to make good and be good people and do good things. And I mean, that's, I suppose, a perfectly legitimate story, but it's a less interesting story than the story of somebody who is a bad man and knows he's a bad man and knows that there really is a redemption for him. In the original, we have the difference between London and Newcastle, which I don't think you get two more different cities. It's definitely two different worlds. When it comes to Get Carter 2000, we have Los Angeles 
and Las Vegas. We start off in Las Vegas, we move to Los Angeles. And yeah, there's definitely a physical difference between the two, and there's a difference in attitude, but both of them have this kind of, at least from an outsider's perspective, both of them seem to embrace this whole idea of unreality. Las Vegas, you have the recreation of... uh, uh, it's a remake of the world with New York, New York, and Paris, and Venice, and all these things, the pyramid, and everything is kind of artifice. And then when you move to Los Angeles, everything is still artifice because we have Hollywood, we have the world of dreams. In this one, it doesn't necessarily uh, embrace filmmaking, but uh, by this time, we have the internet. And at some point, it feels like everybody's in, engaged in an entertainment business of some sort. And Alan Cummings' character is this uh, you know, young tech genius, and we have uh, internet porn being kind of the, the, the thing now, rather than uh, being a porn film, uh, now it's a porn video. There's definitely some one-to-one characters that go from one film to the other. You know, the Mickey Rourke character reminds me of the Anne McHenry character. But then you get the Alan Cumming character, who doesn't necessarily feel like he fits with the rest of the movie. And there are times where he shows up and I'm like, oh, wait, who is he again? What is he? Oh, okay. He just seems kind of like a dick. He doesn't necessarily seem like a criminal. I think the first thing that we have talk about when we talk about an American Get Carter is that it's missing a huge dimension from any English version of Get Carter, which is class difference. And I'm not going to say that there are no class differences in America, but they're much more permeable than class differences in the UK. You can move in America from one class to another, mostly by virtue of money, But in the U.K., if you're common as dirt, you are common as dirt no matter how much money you have. And that's something that really permeates the first version of Get Carter, that there are just people who are born to be walked on, basically, and there are people who are born to walk on people, and there is nothing that you can do about it. You can be as flash and as rich as you want, but you're still not going to be... Uh, a member of the upper classes. And when you take that out, I think it makes Get Carter a less interesting story. There are a couple of moments in the film that I really don't like as far as they feel like trailer moments. There's the moment where we uh, get introduced to Carter and he says, I'm Jack Carter and you don't want to know me. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, that was made for the trailer. And even the whole idea of taking the other things up to another level and there's this whole self-reflexive moment like when the one guy says hey is that your catchphrase and i'm like yeah this is just a little too cheesy a little too on the nose and i said that i like this movie and there are a lot of things that i like about this movie and i like stallone there's a lot of times that i cut him a lot of slack he doesn't necessarily have the gravitas of kane and it's a little strange to have kane in this film and the way that he's revealed to be the master criminal at the end also doesn't ring true to me either. Well, I appreciate that the movie's trying to give us something that isn't the same thing as before, because I think that's what remakes probably should do. I think probably the best remakes are remakes of something that are not very good in the first place, but maybe had a kernel of an idea that was good. 
obviously this is a pointless movie because you know get carter there's not really much you can the uh, original there's not really much you can add to it and stallone is is like he's he's kind of his own victim he's just uh he probably refused or maybe nobody maybe people refused him as being uh, a ruthless character so it's like okay you got to play jack carter as kind of a yeah he's a bad guy but he's a, he's also a really nice guy to his family and he's just uh, compassionate and all these things because we probably as an audience wouldn't accept stallone as a nasty character at least not at that point in his career or maybe even ever it's got that going against it unfortunately and it's it's just it never had a chance, unfortunately. Uh, I think if if you're going from from that template of like, okay, well, Jack Carter's going to be uh, uh, castrated a little bit, the, the character. I don't think you can castrate a character like that. In order for it to work, it has to be mean. It has to be nasty, uncompromising. Get Carter 2000 obviously came out in 2000, <laughs> and around that time there was uh, Payback, which was Brian Helgeland's film with Mel Gibson, where Mel Gibson was playing uh, Donald Westlake, a.k.a. Richard Stark's Parker character, and in that one he was named Porter. And that, to me, is kind of exemplary of uh, just how you take a character and really um, make their bite very gummy. Um, He has no teeth in this one. It's not Parker, it's not even Walker, it's not Point Blank, it's just Porter. And yes, we have the straight no chaser version, but I would say even beyond that, the original cut of it that was out there for a while via the bootleg circuit, you see more of Porter being not a nice guy whatsoever. And then compare that to what came out theatrically, and it's just night and day uh, we have really made him more of the uh, three stooges-esque uh, mel gibson uh, type thing and it's interesting to take a look at borman's point blank and uh, hodges get carter and how those two characters would change when you sh- compare them to the 1999 payback and the 2000 get carter and just see how these modern action heroes like Mel Gibson and Sylvester Stallone and just how they, uh, the films have to be toned down for these modern-day action heroes. And it's kind of a shame that we can't have these badass action heroes that we once had, that we have to shade them and make them nicer. I like that in the late 60s, early 70s, that you could have these heroes that were completely unredemptive. Well, I think you're completely right, and that is absolutely what's wrong with Carter 2000, is that that character is soft, frankly, and because of that, he's no different from, you know, any any other of half a dozen stars of movies like that. There's, There's no reason to be interested in him. And yet, you know, in American mainstream cinema, to create a character as completely dead at the heart and empty in the eyes as Michael Caine's Carter is extremely difficult because that character fails the first test of American studio movie leading character characters, which is, well, but you have to like the guy. He's not likable. He, he is he's a killing machine. He's a not nice guy. 
and he's not going to be redeemed because that's not who he is. Hearing the differences between Jack Carter of the movie, 1971 that is, and Jack Carter of the book, when Eric's talking about him slapping Doreen around in order to get information around of her and not her being not him being nice to his niece at all. And now Kane is not necessarily that nice to Doreen. He kind of tolerates her. He tries to help her out. He asks her if she wants to go to South America with he and his squeeze. And he does kind of try to look out for her, but compare that to the kind of major relationship between Carter and Doreen have as uh, Sylvester Stallone and Rachel Lee Cook, where she almost becomes like his sidekick. By the end of the film, they're the ones that are trading quips and they're riding off into the sunset. And yeah, it shouldn't necessarily be that way. The film is way too sun bleach. And I, I, I have to say, him showing up at the end uh, without the goatee, it really feels like there's two things going on. One, it feels like he, again, is becoming the nice guy by losing that kind of son of Satan goatee. You know, the change of removing that is kind of removing him being this badass. But also, too, it feels like this ending was shot a lot later when he was already working on something else where he removed the goatee for it. And it feels like the line is this, this kind of a a throwaway thing where they're trying to explain away the lack of the goatee. Uh, but that could just be me being one of the most cynical assholes uh, around. Well, I think you have to be a little cynical to enjoy the original get Carter. So I'm going to agree with you on that one. That I am one of the most cynical assholes around. You're trying to trap me, and you and you managed uh, that you're a little cynical. And, uh, yeah, it's quite possible. I, I, when I saw it, too, I had never seen the um, the remake, Get Carter 2000, up until you got me for this. And I'm like, well, I guess I might as well start watching it. So I bought it, and um, I remember that striking me. The lack of goatee being like, oh, this was like maybe three, four months later. And uh, they decided to do some pickup for whatever reason. Or maybe even change the ending. Perhaps he died at the end. I doubt it. But it's entirely possible, I guess. They were giving a, giving it a little bit more harder-edged in an ending. Well, yeah, they definitely changed the end, and we talked a little bit to director Stephen Kay about that. So let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with Stephen Kay. But first, we're going to play the interview with the man that played Con McCartney, John C. McGinley. So what can you tell me about shooting Git Carter? Um, my most vivid memory is... Sly and I had been workout acquaintances at the Malibu gym, which was a a gym, I guess it's still here in Malibu, uh, over the years for like five years or so. And then Stephen Kay, who directed the film, having never met me, but he was good friends with a a writer named Scott Silver. And uh, I guess Scott was talking to him about me, and the offer just came in to come and play, you know, that great, that great character, that great bad guy. I said yes, and so I had been commuting back and forth from uh, Vancouver anyway, and so I think scheduling-wise, it was fantastic. And then before you know it, we were doing that great fight scene in the elevator, and all I remember about the fight scene in the elevator is that it was uh, really close quarters, obviously, and that Sly's fists 
would go just zipping by my face, but never touch, and he had rings on and stuff. And it, it, it became clear when we were marking it and, and inventing the choreography that he was obviously great at this. And I'm, I'm pretty good at that stuff, but not as good as Sly. And that's why that fight is just so aggressive. And because the two of us were just going after it, but without ever uh, landing a, a, a hurtful blow to the other. And so it was really liberating to just be able to throw each other around that elevator. And uh, then Stephen really chopped that scene up, so it's so brutal. And uh, I, th- I thought that was really thrilling to do that fight scene in the elevator. You're a bad guy in that. And I know you don't have a lot of experience playing bad guys in movies. So what was that like for you? Um, I thought the script was really cleanly written. And that character, the, the way he served the narrative was very clear to me. And uh, Ted Lewis uh, was on the set there with us. Oh, I'm sorry, David, David uh, what was it, David McKenna? David, mm-hmm. he got the... Um, and I, I, they were... David and... Uh, and Stephen were both very malleable as far as making, you know, Con McCarty just a very uh, integral part of the story. And, you know, he kind of disappears in the second act, and then he comes back, and he's been charged with, with you know, just putting an end to either bringing back Sly or putting an end to him. And that, that through line in the narrative became really clean and very accessible and, and not superfluous in the story. And so those, those kind of notes are, uh, they're very playable. They're very active. And so where I, I always encourage actors to figure out where they fit into the story. And that sounds a little more rudimentary than, than maybe you'd think, but it's, uh, I think it's really important to figure out where you fit into the story. If you're the best friend or the coworker or you're the enabler or you're the guy who put the bomb on the bus, um, whatever, whatever it is. And figuring, figuring out where I fit into that story uh, happened early on, and I got really aggressive with it. And, and Sly was, was cool with it, and, and so was Steven. And so the character in the car chase is fantastic, and we were just flying around Seattle. And I just I wanted to make, make it you know, a very aggressive part of the, the story. You know, he has that lovely scene with Rachel, and... You know, there's a bunch of really cool scenes. He has those scenes with Michael that are very calm and beautiful. And then, you know, when we're when we're beating up Mark Boone, I just we just we're beating the shit out of him uh, without actually touching him. And Mark was great in that scene. And that stuff with Mickey is so so weird and great. And I love that movie. And then Rona is so beautiful in that movie. Uh, all those great actors, Alan Cummings, Michael. God, there's a bunch of good actors in that movie. Miranda, what are you kidding me? You seem to be having a really good time with it. I did because I knew where I figured into the story, and I, you know, sometimes when when a director or the writer doesn't know where you fit in, some actors are left on the set just kind of just trying to keep their head above water, and that's when characters get lost, and especially they get lost in the edit, and. You know, another example of that is like in Seven. David knew exactly where my character in Seven lives in the story. And, you know, it's, a, it's an ancillary, a completely supportive ancillary character, but important in the third act. And, and Stephen kind of did me a great service in, I don't know, in kind of a, a half-hour lunch. You know, I went out to... to uh, 
I met with Stephen over the phone, and he, he just kind of laid it out where he, where and what he wanted this guy doing. And then you can come onto the set guns blazing instead of taking a week playing guess your best and then having seven days of regret between your ears. And so that, that's, uh, that's a big deal for actors. You said that you were uh, Sly Stallone's kind of uh, gym buddy. That must be a little intimidating. No, because Sly's one of the great guys. You know, when he, when he would come to the gym, he obviously he's very comfortable in that environment, so am I, and everybody would do their thing. What have been some of your other favorites to do? Where have you other also felt very comfortable and, and kind of knowing your role? Well, when Oliver had us do that two-week boot camp before Platoon, everybody everybody in the in the two and a half weeks that we were doing that boot camp, if you can't find, if you can't find mm. definition in the narrative in two weeks of, Im, of the immersion rehearsal, then you should probably be connecting pipes for you know A1 plumbing or something because that was the greatest. Also on Wall Street, I worked on Wall Street for uh, between undergrad and grad for a year. I was an assistant to a specialist on the floor of the exchange, and my whole family's in finance. And so when Charlie and I were on that trading desk for three weeks, uh, I, I kind of believed that stuff. And so uh, that was not a reach either. I loved you in talk radio as well. Well, talk radio, I got to do the play for two years. I originated the play, that character, Stu, I originated that uh, at the Shakespeare Festival with Eric, and there's this gorgeous monologue in the, I don't know, about 20 minutes into the play. I'm on stage with Eric the whole time, fielding calls, and about 20 minutes into it, the actor's dream hack happens. Um, I turn to the audience, and a pin spot hits me, and I come down to the closest you can be to the audience on any uh, proscenium stage. It, the light cue is called down in one, and so I go down in one. A pin spot hits me, and I tell this gorgeous eight-minute story about Eric's character and me, and uh, it was as good as it gets. And so for about a month there, I was doing talk radio, which was a massive hit, uh, at the Shakespeare Festival, I was doing that at night, and for about a month, I was doing Wall Street during the day, and that's about as good as it gets for a New York actor. And so, by the time we got around to shoot and talk radio, I'd already done the play for two years. And if if the camera is an X-ray machine, then when it when it turned on me in in uh, in talk radio, I could. I could just tell my truth because I'd done it for, I don't know, I'd done three or 400 performances of it. At the time, it was just a grind. You know, you're doing, it's an off-Broadway schedule, so you're doing eight a week. You know, you're going Tuesday through Friday nights, and then off-Broadway, um, you do two Friday night, two Saturday, and one Sunday. And so you do five in 48 hours, and you got to just grind, man. I think you might be one of the actors who's worked with Oliver Stone the most through his I career. Am. I am. How has that uh, experience been, and how has he kind of changed over the years as you've worked with him? He's the smartest guy in any room he's in. He's the best red guy in any room. And when you're on his sets, the key to being on Oliver's sets is to understand that as much as you want this to be a collaboration, it is Oliver's film. And if you can creatively... You know how at Churchill Downs the the horses run with, with blinders on? Oliver's sets function within a narrow bandwidth he has creative blinders on he knows precisely the story that he's telling and if you can fit inside that vision of, of, his, of where his blinders are it's nirvana 
if you want to function outside that, that's when actors have bad experiences on Oliver's sets. It's Oliver's film. It's not, it's not summer stock. Are you still doing a lot of uh, stage work, or are you purely movies these days? I did about four in a row this year, and now I'm getting ready to do another one, so I guess I've just kind of gotten back on the movie train. I got on that movie train. I mean, I did, I did Glenn Gary with Al, with uh, Pacino two years ago at, um, at the Schoenfeld on Broadway for about, we did 100 performances. That's what everybody agreed to. And so we opened right after Sandy, the hurricane hit, and then we ran, so that was what, the end of September, and we ran through the middle of January, and that was easily the greatest experience of my life. I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, the Belco experiment. <laughs> it's violent. <laughs> we were down in Bogota, and that is not for little boys and girls, man. But I don't know what, I'm sure they're dumbing it down as we speak, or sanitizing it, but uh, that... I had a friend who was a trainer for the Philadelphia Eagles for about 10 years, and uh, he used to say on Thursdays when everybody would wear pads again, sometimes the only day of the week, and they'd have full contact, he'd say, we're going all the way live. And uh, Belko down in, um, we were just, we were down there in Bogota, and uh, Greg McLean, who, who shot a big hit, scary movie in Australia, was one of the more capable young directors I've met in a long time. He cast the living heck out of that movie, and he brought down all these terrific actors, Tony Goldwyn and all these people I've never met before, and the young kid from the newsroom, and God, there must have been a dozen actors who I never met before who were fantastic, and that's not always the case. And he was quite precise, and then James Gunn, who obviously wrote it, and um, I would say that, that, that doing Belko uh, initially, the, the the big attraction was to work with James, and then and he was fantastic. He he came down for a couple of days, and he stayed for three weeks because he was having so much fun with this ensemble. And obviously, coming off Guardians, everybody wanted to be kind of in the in the James show. But the the Greg McLean became the great secret weapon. And so I have no idea how that film will turn out, but it was it was one of those that was great to shoot. And that's not always the case. I wanted to ask you real quick. I know you've got to run in a second here, but you know, you've been in so many roles, so many great year, roles over the years. When people come up to you on the street, what are some of the ones that they bring up to you most it's often? It's demographically specific. Yeah? Yeah. It's demographically specific. So, Well, I'm over in Detroit, so what do you think I would bring up for you? So a lot of people in Detroit would see set it off with Queen Latifah and with Jada and everybody. And a lot of people in Detroit would see younger, younger people. Um, office space seems to be recycled. Older people like my age, 56, have seen Platoon. And then, the, you know, the big monster, of course, is Scrubs. It just because it's, it's on your TV and in your house all day. And then the real fans, you know, have seen other stuff that are a little more obscure. White guys my age have seen Wall Street. And then... I don't know. It goes from there. And then um, because I, I advocate um, so much for the special needs community, a lot of people know me from different stuff I've done with the, our Down syndrome community. And so uh, it's, it's right in that bandwidth. I have to say, yeah, office space. And then also, for better or for worse, Highlander 2. <laughs> Highlander 2, I decided, because I was having a, a man crush on... I was late to the party on Orson Welles, 
And as a young actor, I was just like, okay, this guy's the shit. I want to be Orson Welles. And so I hired a voice teacher, and uh, I decided I was going to make my voice an octave lower. And so I'm in New York. I'm doing all these, you know, breathing and voice stuff, trying to get my voice an octave lower to go down to um, where we, in Buenos Aires. And so I had to go back and forth in Buenos Aires three times because there was no money to house me for some reason. And so every time I went down there, my voice was lower. And so there's nothing, nothing in that script that suggests that that character's voice has to be low. But for some reason, I got it in my man crush head on Orson Welles that I had to have a low voice in that film. And as a result, it, it looks like we looped the whole performance. I didn't loop anything in that film, but the, my voice is so disconnected from that, that, that figure on the screen that, I, God, I saw that film again about 10 years ago, and I'm like, all I could do is go third person and go, what is that actor doing? <laughs> what the hell is that actor doing? Oh, God. Never, no more man crushes on Orson Welles. You know who's Orson Welles? Orson Welles. Family, leave it alone. In all um, honesty, though, I have to say, A Midnight Clear is definitely one of those roles of yours that I really appreciate. Oh, God, I love that movie. How about that? How about that for an ensemble? Gary and Ethan and then Peter and... Whew, how about that for a starting three? Pretty impressive. Ari Gross in there. That's a pretty darn good group. And my friend, my uh, castmate, Cooper too, Kevin Dillon. That movie just, it knocks it out of the park. We were supposed to go to Austria, to Linz, Austria, to shoot that. And a month before we were going to leave, they were having a heat wave in the middle of the winter in Linz, Austria. So the whole thing in this chaotic location shift moved to Sundance, to, I'm sorry, to uh, Park City. And so we ended up shooting the whole thing in Utah, and, uh, oh my God, it was such a panic moving it, as you can imagine, you have the whole cast and crew ready to go to Linz, Austria, and in the bottom of the ninth, you make a change in location. That was huge. And we got there and it went off without a hitch because uh, Keith Gordon, Keith was just magnificent. It's so great when you get on a set and the director knows exactly what he or she wants. And I imagine he's kind of an actor's director, so yes. he, that was his background. Yes. Yeah. And he did this genius thing where it worked out. I don't know if somebody did it on purpose or not, but all the actors, that was a low-budget independent, and all those actors were each in tiny, tiny little dressing rooms, and I guess they had no more tiny little dressing rooms, so they got me this huge Winnebago, and it separated me from that group, which was great, and it created a little bit of animosity, like real animosity, and I think it worked because... Uh, I mean, I'm friends with Ethan, and I'm obviously friends with Kev, and, uh, but there was a little bit of weirdness, and it was, it was kind of Winnebago weirdness, because they were there grinding for like two and a half months. I came in for a week and did that, you know, that one scene inside where I come into Yelton, and then there's that exterior where I'm driving away in the Jeep. So I think I was only there for a day or two, and the whole time I was there, I was in this huge block-long Winnebago, and I was getting the stink eye from all of them. And I didn't freaking know why. I didn't have anything to do with any of that stuff. But it worked on screen. And it was a production error. Somebody, somebody didn't, didn't account for providing McGinley with a tiny little dressing room. And so they're like, they panicked. And somebody got me a huge Winnebago. And then they kept it after I left. And they all used it as their game room. And they called it the McGinley. They called the, who told me this story? Uh, 
who told me? Oh, Peter Berg told me the story that they ended up calling the uh, the Winnebago the McGinley. So they go up to an AD and they go like, uh, uh, you know, when you go to when you have a you have to go to the bathroom on set, you go you go to the AD and you go you tell them I'm going ten one hundred, and so they'd go they'd go to the first or the second AD. I'm going ten one hundred in McGinley. I have a a stupid question for you to to round us out here. How often do you get uh, mixed up with John C. Riley? Never. Never? Good. Oh, I, I see John down at the beach all the time, and he's, oh, my God, is he great. He's just, but that's that's two such distinctly different universes. I mean, the only similarity there is that we can both do comedy pretty easily, but uh, otherwise, we, I would never, I've never met John in the same waiting room for casting. You, that's two different ways to go with a character. Those are, that's two different universes. John's vibe is so distinctly different than I, if I was producing something, if I had to go third person, I would never bring Riley and McGinley in for the same thing. It just that doesn't make sense to me. And I love me and John. I always love when you show up because you always bring such intensity to the stuff that you play. It's just always a pleasure. Where do you see Belco, man? Holy shit! I can't wait. I can't wait. Oh my god! If that film is. 25% as good as it was shooting it. And if it doesn't get too sanitized, it would be really good. Tony and I are the, are the head bad guys. And then the rest of it, I guess you got to go see. But Whew! Man, I can't think of two better bad guys than that. Yeah, that worked out. That was peas in a pod. That was peas in a pod, man. Because he's one of the great guys on the planet. And he's also a stunning actor. I loved when you showed up in Burn Notice, too. That was a tremendous turn. God, I would... (sighs) That was really special. That was a great character. Those guys, what's his name, Nick? The guy who's the the, uh, executive producer on that, he's just, he's got it dialed. And Jeffrey Donovan, who also went to NYU grad, is just, he's a really next-level actor. And he'd been obviously playing that role and been nominated a couple of times for Emmys. And that set was a well-oiled machine. That was a great gig. And the Cagney and Lacey lady down there that played the woman. Who's the woman who plays in Cagney and Lacey? Who was Sharon Glass? She's great. She was. She was good. She's a gamer. She was the last. She told me she was the last female contract player. Um, uh, one of the lots. Let's say Warner Brothers. But she was their last female contract player. I mean, she was this young, stunning, beautiful actress who also had really unbelievable chops. And we got to do that one interrogation scene. Oh, my, she really brought it. I was, that was a great gig. God, that was fun. I really, really became very fond of Jeffrey Donovan. And Bruce Campbell was great in that. And, and the girl who lives up in Topanga, um, who's the lead girl in that? She's so cool. Gabriel Anwar. Oh, she was great. I had, a, I had a bunch of different lunches with her on the set, and I just thought she was, first of all, she's a goddess, and then second of all, she's just very, very cool, and then when you we call action, she can deliver it. Well, very cool. Hey, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure. I, I don't know how much stuff I gave you on uh, Carter, but you know, mo- most of that experience was just about being with Steven and with Sly, and uh, that's uh, and that's good enough. I mean, geez. Were you a fan of the original? I thought Stevens was better. I thought the, I thought the original gets a little. I got a little bored. And Stevens is much more aggressive, and it moves along at an unbelievable clip, and it's just stacked 
with great actors. Stacked. Stephen cast the hell out of that thing. That scene on the rooftop with Sly and Rachel is so beautiful. Uh, it's just stunning. It's one of my favorite scenes Sly's ever played. It's such a beautiful scene. Makes me want to go watch it. And then Alan is oh. so weird and great in it, and Mickey, who's been a friend of I've done a bunch of movies with Mickey, and I just, I like when you call action and just get out of his eye line and let him go. I, I don't care. I just, I'm one of those, I'm a Mickey guy. I want to know, how did you get into the business? I got into the business, um, I wanted to be a poet when I got out of college, foolish as, as I am. And then, uh, and I sort of stumbled and crawled my way into writing and, and then acting and then, and then directing, trying to figure out what was, what was my way to, to, to find my voice. And, and, uh, and I think writing and directing certainly well eclipsed acting. I read that you grew up in New Zealand. How long have you been in the States? Um, I didn't. That's actually a... I don't know what a, a miscommunication. Um, I went. I went to New Zealand. Uh, I shot a movie there for about a year, and when I came back, uh, I had suddenly been born there. So, wow. Yes. Yeah, so um, I think it's one of those. Uh, it's one of those things. And my daughter, my daughter likes it coming up on IMDb that way. So I let it ride. And every time I've tried to change it, it's gone back to the way it was. I'm actually a kid from. Philly and the Philly suburbs. Were you making movies when you were still in Philadelphia, or did you move to L.A. first, or how did no, that go? I, I, I didn't start making movies until uh, I was an actor in, in, uh, in New York after college, and, uh, and then I, I moved to Los Angeles and started, uh, uh, started playing with making movies. It looks like some of your early stuff was TV work, like 30-something in Quantum Leap. Yeah. Yeah, very, very, very early work. I was lucky to have it. I'm thankful to have it. I was, I was dealing with a, a variety of demons at the time. So I was able, able to get a bunch of TV and a, and a bunch of commercials, weirdly. And that was, how I, that was how I stayed afloat while I was trying to figure out what it was that I wanted to do with the rest of my life. What were some of your early writing projects that you were working on? Um, I had written a bunch of plays. I I wrote um, I wrote a, a script that that um, that never got made for uh, for Disney. Um, weirdly, about the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, um, which which they then said um, oh, you can't blaspheme the ride, and so we we didn't blaspheme the ride. And twenty thirty years later, they made it. Super cool movie, sort of inspired by the ride. The, I co-wrote the Mod Squad with um, with my best friend, um, and I uh, uh, wrote uh, you know wrote my first the first movie I did. Wrote a short that I it was based on a play that I'd written with uh, with a friend, and we made that short back when Showtime was having this thing called the uh, I forget what it was called. It was called like the Discovery something and it was a uh it was a contest basically and if you if you won the contest and they trusted you as a director you would get an opportunity to direct the short that you wrote and they would finance it and uh so that was the first time that i ever kind of professionally directed 
Was that too over easy? Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting for me to watch because it was super not my... I loved the actors. I thought it was a really sweet story, but but uh, it's not my it's not my tone visually, and uh, it's a, it's a part of me, but it's not really doesn't it doesn't it doesn't speak to what I wanted to do, and still want to do as a as a filmmaker. Now, how did you move from that into doing something like the last time I committed suicide? The last time I committed suicide was, you know, that was certainly more in the world that I, I wanted to explore. That was when I, when I was in college, I, I had become fascinated by the beats and I knew that that was the, that was certainly the genre that I, that I wanted to, or, or the world that I wanted to explore. And at the time, you know, that was the, Sort of the the heyday of uh, or just post the heyday of real independent. It was it was just after maybe five years after Sex Lies and Videotape had blown up at Sundance and Jarmusch was king and you could really make a movie a little movie without big stars or anything else or so I thought. So I started writing that and then. Um, but I was a first time filmmaker. So I was playing hockey one day and told Keanu about what I was working on. I was playing hockey with Keanu. Um, he said, uh, can I read it? And I said, sure. And then he read it and said, well, if there's anything you need me to do to help you make it, uh, let me help. One thing led to another and he ended up in it. And so people ended up Paying for it, and we put together a a a fairly monster cast, and got to go make a a super cool little art film that I I don't know if it could get made today probably for a couple hundred grand, but I don't know that it could get made for I think it was probably around one and a half million bucks. Yeah, I can't get over the cast in this movie with Thomas Jane and Adrian Brody. I mean, just everybody in there is somebody. It was cool. It was really, and it was cool. It was, it was in a weird way like that. And, and, and get Carter were sort of the, the last two times I got to cast the the people I wanted. And I look at those casts and go, those are baller casts. Those are like really really like other other than super talented they were lovely people and and it didn't you know suicide in particular you know Gretchen Mall hadn't done a movie before Thomas had done very little before Adrian had done very little before um Claire Filani had done very little it was you know other than other than Keanu the whole cast you know Mark Helgenberger had done China Beach uh John Doe was John Doe it was a pretty special, a pretty special group of people, um, and uh, and we were all doing something that uh, that we all thought was really fun. So it was cool. So what was that experience like for you as a first-time director handling? You know, not only were they you know big and small names at the time, but it was a pretty large cast as well. Yeah, it was a it was a it was definitely a big cast, but the the scenes were weirdly not large and and i you know i love 
uh, I'm married to one. But I love actors. I, I, I do, and I, I super respect what they do, and, and I respect their temperaments and their passion. And these were a bunch of crazy passionate people. Amy Smart was in the movie. I'm like thinking about, in my, in my head, I'm thinking about, and all these people, like Amy hadn't done a movie before. And so all these people were just sort of stretching um, and trying out the the tools and myself included. And we were all learning together. We had, we had uh, a couple very, we had a very experienced DP and we had um, some, uh, had a great, I, I had a great editor, but we had, for the most part, we were a bunch of, people who who were in it for passion. I mean, the, the composer was his first movie was Tyler Bates, who's a rock star and doing humongous movies now. And it was a, it was a rare, super cool experience. And, uh, I think now that I'm a, I won't, I won't curse, but now that I'm an old dude, it's really, I find myself strangely chasing that. You know, strangely trying to go, where's the, where's the moment where you get a bunch of people who are super passionate together to make something that, you know, people may or may not like, but that comes from a really honest place. It was a special time, for sure. You were on a really quick upward trajectory at the time to go from that in 97 to get Carter in 2000. I mean, going from, you said that one was made for a little over a million to what was get Carter, like over $60 million budget for that one. It was right. I think it was around 40, but it was, but it was still, yeah, it was huge. It was, I, I was actually, I was scheduled to do another small independent film. And then I got a phone call saying that Sly had seen the movie and wanted to talk. And then he was doing this remake of Get Carter. And like I said, I grew up in Philly. So you, you grow up in Philly and Rocky calls, you jump. There was a moment that I was, I think I was, I was still trying to figure out if I wanted to be that guy, if I wanted to make a big, studio movie with a huge movie star. But, uh, you know, like I said, I was a, I was a big fan of his and, uh, and I loved the original, which scared the crap out of me. So I sat down and, and talked to him. It was pretty, it was pretty crazy. Now you carried some people over with you from your first project into this one with Tyler Bates and Gretchen Maul. Who else um, kind of made that transition with you? And were these kind of like your your um, rabbit's feet as far as some of these people that you worked with? Or how did they make that jump with you? Yeah, I mean, we were trying. I tried to get the role that, I'm trying to remember which role it was. It was either the role that Alan Cumming played or the role that, that Johnny Strong played. I can't remember. One of those two roles I had talked to Thomas about doing. It, but he he was right in the middle of I think he had just finished doing Rennie's movie, and he was looking he was he was doing something else. But yeah, I mean I was trying to bring as many people with, with me as I could, partly for security and partly just because I thought they were amazing. I mean you know Gretchen is still a dear friend. Gretchen is still someone I think is. So, so very special. I would have brought everybody. I'd have brought 
you know, I'd have brought Adrian, I'd have brought Claire and, you know, say Keanu anywhere with me. I'd have brought anybody from that movie on with me. Tyler, I knew I wanted to use. Uh, I think Dorian, uh, the editor, I think she wasn't available to do it. Um, but, but yeah, I try, I tried to sort of bring people over and, and in the end I tried to, I, I tried anyway with the cast to bring a similar sensibility. And, and I think they were from Miranda to Alan Cumming to Mickey. They were all super odd, interesting, passionate people who didn't necessarily approach this as, yeah, making a, studio movie, um, a studio Sly movie, you know, um, I think we, I think Sly wasn't trying to make a typical Sly movie. Now, where was the project at when you kind of came along to it? Because you said that Sly invited you to be on it. Where had he gotten the project to at that point? He had, there was a script. They were, there was a start date. I mean, they were, they were, the train was leaving. They, I think, I think there was a director on it. I can't remember who it was, but I think there was a director on it who fell off for whatever reason. And so, but they had Sly and money and a script and they wanted to move forward. They came to me with, with a script and a, um, and, and him. And I said, I was certainly interested, and I said I'd, I'd like to play with the script a little bit. And so we played with the script a little bit, and and there was a version that I think was a was a different version of what was eventually shot that um, was probably a little a little uglier, a little dirtier. But I think that in the end wasn't the movie they wanted to make, and I understand that and I, and I also understand you know my my agenda was certainly very different um at the beginning uh, or or you know as a as a guy who had just come out of the indie world I think I was still approaching it like it was an independent film you know he became my my biggest champion um he had he had, they had already talked to Morrow uh, about shooting it and Sly, Sly's a, I mean, say what you, say what you want to, he's, he is an artist, has genuinely an artist sensibility. And, you know, he, you know, he's a collector of great, beautiful things. And he had seen, I don't know what he had seen Mauro do, but he said to me, this guy is super special. And he would say he was a gaffer for Janusz and, and I, uh, he's young and exciting and we should get him before someone else does. I had talked tomorrow and, uh, and we moved forward with, with Mara, who is now, you know, Academy Award winning DP. I know that uh, Sylvester Stallone definitely can take chances in his career. You know, when you were making your first feature film, he was there, you know, in Copland, so which was such a departure for him. When it came to being in Get Carter, did he have any kind of specifications as far as this is his image? Because I remember in a, a similar film, like a Payback with Mel Gibson, it was I can't be 
too bad, it felt like, or like the test audiences didn't want to see a bad Mel Gibson. Was there a similar concern for Sylvester Stallone? Yeah, I think for sure. I mean, look, I think, I think, uh, and I don't know even, frankly, that the concerns come from, from him all the time. I think the concerns, if you're, if you're making a movie with, with one of the first things that, that they said to me, that the, the studio said to me was, he doesn't die. Just so you know, he doesn't die. I know he dies. I know, I know Carter dies in the book. I know he dies in the movie. He doesn't die. And so you got to figure out a way to justify him not dying. And which was a, a weirdly, and maybe I was justifying, but, and, and, and still justifying, but maybe, but I, I felt like it was a really interesting exercise. Like there's no reason to make the movie again. They made it perfectly the first time, unless you're going to say something different. And to me, as soon as you sort of throw down the gauntlet of he doesn't die, then you have to rethink what the, what the point of the, of the narrative is. And, and so it became weirdly, I was like, all right, so we have to figure out that he has to, he has to learn that, that that doesn't work by the end. And so it has to strangely become a revenge movie about forgiveness and, uh, and about a guy forgiving himself for being ugly. And, you know, I think, I think there was, there were a lot of forces at, at work, you know, and some of it is to preserve the, the icon. I mean, you're, you're, you're making a movie with arguably, you know, I would say top 10, probably just in pure iconographic, you know, in a, in a purely iconographic sense, there are very few men in the world that have, carve their their space like fly has um and i think when you're you know when you're a studio or a financier you're going this is what we pay for don't fuck it up right you don't want to kill the golden goose exactly now what kind of control did you have over the casting fly had opinions for sure and so did the studio but they were incredibly generous when it came to that you know there were script things and stuff like that, that, that they were less generous as that stuff is always goes. But, but man, if, if everybody would give me the freedom to cast like that, it was, it was really in the end, we would all sit in a room. But in the end, if I was like, I'm really passionate about having this guy or, you know, this girl, Rachel came on because I knew her. Rachel Lee Cook came on. She was exploding at the time. And, and I, you know, she was a friend and, and I don't know what the, what they thought, but everybody, I mean, to cast Alan Cumming as, as one of your bad guys is kind of mind boggling for a Sylvester Stallone movie. And, um, and Mickey, I know they were studio was nervous about him because she had a, at the time he, he was going through a rough time and he had a bad reputation and frankly sly brought him up to me mentioned it to me and i'm a huge fan i've been a huge fan forever and it was well as soon as i said i love him as an idea sly went to bat and he's a he's a pretty honestly he's a pretty classy dude um and they were really kind to me in in when it came to casting Tell me about the Tom Sizemore thing. Why is he never shown in the film? 
Tom also did that as a favor. It was always the idea was I was never going to use. I I, I like the idea of never seeing that guy. It was a it was a conceit that I had before we ever started shooting because I liked the idea of it's not a character that that necessarily you're not supposed to invest in him. He's all that shit that's chasing him. He's in a weird way. He's slides past and he comes in the in the face of of Johnny C. McGinley. But he's he's really just and and frankly we had a local actor doing it and when we cut it all together, one of the producers said that voice isn't scary at all. Uh and he was right. And so we we were talking about um people that have powerful, creepy voices Tom definitely has can 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 carry a lot of of heat and and intensity in his voice. Was there any hesitation about bringing Michael Caine back to the movie? I I honestly I said the only way I would do it is if Michael was in the movie and he was originally going to play um, a different character and for a number of reasons he didn't. But yeah, I think you have to. I think you I think out of respect for the original, we we needed him in the movie desperately. We needed his blessing. And, and for me, you know, selfishly, uh, he's, he's Michael Caine. If you have any chance to work with him, you work with him. Uh, I still will periodically call his agent going uh, when I have anything and just go, is he around? Is he available? He's never available because he works more than anyone on the planet. But he's a very, very, he's special, special. So, yeah, there was no, for me, you don't make, you can't make that movie without a not-so-subtle wink to the original. Who was he supposed to play? He was going to play the Johnny C. McGinley role. Um, which I thought originally I thought would be fun because like I said, if that's his past chasing him, then uh, it's interesting to see these two dudes making, making their way. But, uh, but for a number of reasons, it didn't, it didn't end up that way. Can you clear something up for me? One of the things that I read about the film was that Michael Caine didn't have as many scenes originally, but, test audiences wanted to see more of them, so you had to go back and do reshoots. Is there any validity to that? There actually is, yes. Yes, there is. There is total validity to that. Yeah, he had, I mean, he had scenes, but it was, he was not the uber villain, but they wanted more. That had to be such a strange experience for you to go from this very independent past or where, you know, you're, you're an actor, then you're a writer, then you're a director. And now suddenly you have to experience test screenings and all those kind of things. Yeah. It was very difficult. It was very, that part of it, the rest of the rest of the movie was frankly an incredible blessing. I, I loved working with the cast. The crew was amazing. It was like, it was so it was, I should have known it was so easy and fun. The testing process is not testing the reshoots, the, all that sort of stuff is not really my jam. There was an opportunity to work with Michael again. So that was cool. But you know, it's, it's, 
It's it's not easy, and it's that's it's how you hear, you know, you hear hear directors, um, um, writers, and actors even, you know, slip periodically and say angry things. I never got to that point, but you know, it's not it's not easy. It's it's a uh, it's a it's a hard part of the process, especially when you don't know it. You know, there are ways. I, I think now that I'm older and older. I would be better at navigating it. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I feel I feel my my. It was a hard. It was it was a tricky thing for sure. That has to be difficult to now change who the the man behind the curtain is when it comes to this. Who was the original person? Who is that uber villain? Well, that's the 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 thing, and they're not. They they weren't wrong. I I screwed up in 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 a little bit uh, of it in that. It was supposed to be Alan. I mean, the the climax of the movie is supposed to be Alan. He takes Alan to the woods, and when he would normally kill him, he instead decides to let him live and stop the the chain of violence because it's not it's not going to end anywhere good. And then he goes and and says goodbye to Doreen and uh, and rides off into the sunset. And I'm sure it was in the test screening that I was sweating through. I don't even remember, frankly, but, but someone along the way said that's not satisfying enough and they, and they want more Michael. And it may have been my dumb idea to go, well, look, if they want more Michael and you don't like the ending, let's make Michael the bad guy. It was someone's idea. It's the end of the movie now, but it was, uh, it was definitely, that was the trickiest part. I think for me, but like I said, it was such, I was, I, I had such a good time on the movie and I still look at the movie and, and there's so much of it that I, that I actually am proud of that glitch. I rarely think of, frankly, there are some very interesting choices in this movie that really help it stand out. Like things like the multiple takes of John C. McGinley saying the same line at the beginning or the uh, the guy that Sly throws out of the window and we don't actually see that, but we see the aftermath of it. I think that's what really helps get Carter stand out for me is some of those interesting choices that you made when it came to the final presentation. Thank you. The truth is, as much as... I may say that it was that that part of it was hard coming from an independent world. They they really they let me make that movie as an independent film. We were turning off the camera and turning the camera back on in the middle of takes. We were you know flipping a camera on its ear and you know designing things to be like we're not going to do the big the stock stunt of the dude flying over the balcony and crashing onto the window. No, I mean, crashing onto the car. To me, the freedom to play like that was, you know, the fight scene in the elevator was a not not a conventional studio conceit. That was that was rare freedom, and, and I think it's a uh, it's a cool thing to find in a in a in a studio movie, and it's why I'm able to watch that movie and have uh and, and still smile how was the movie received when it came out look it certainly didn't make the money we thought or they thought or hoped it was going to make it's a movie that is still um i had to leave a set tonight 
And um, when I was leaving, I was telling one of the grips that, you know, I was going to talk to you about Carter and, and this. And he, he looks at me, wait, 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 what? You directed Get Carter? It's one of my favorite movies. And it's, people have a very strange reaction to the movie now. It, it was not seen in theaters. It just wasn't. You know, it's a movie that I think people find later. I've gotten very strange phone calls from people who I will not mention, famous and some notorious people saying, love that movie, favorite movie. And it's, it's, it's interesting. It's a, it's, it did not, it certainly did not help fly at the time and it didn't help me at the time in, in terms of its reception. I think we're both, we were talking about it a year ago. We went out to lunch, um, maybe less than a year ago. And we're both, you know, we're both still proud of it. As you should be, yeah. I think it was very disappointing for everybody when it when it came out and was, was not, you know, I think people were not, I think people, frankly, didn't know what it was going to be. It was at a weird time in his career, my career, all of it. So that's your your sophomore effort. How does that affect which way you're moving going forward? Because, like I said, you were on this kind of really mobile upward path. Did that kind of throw a roadblock in the way for you? For sure. I don't think I'm speaking out of school or anything else. I think you make a movie that doesn't perform. And you, you know, you go to movie jail a little bit. I was fortunate to find, you know, I could keep writing and find, find some, some television that, that was, that I could get very passionate about. Be, be sort of freed through, through that world. It was hard for everybody. And, um, certainly the, the person who rightfully should get, get dinged if a movie doesn't perform is uh, is a director. So you can't go back to Warner Brothers and go, look, I know that one didn't perform, but it was a cool movie, right? Come on, hook a brother up. They're businessmen, and I don't blame them. You have definitely done two of the most infamous or possibly famous TV movies in recent years between The Hunt for the BTK Killer and then The Craigslist Killer as well. Mm-hmm. I, be, I I found a I found a strange a, a strange niche in that stuff. I was able to do some weird movies for television. Um, I got to do the 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 Shield and Friday Night Lights and Sons of Anarchy and all that stuff for fun and passion and and all that. And then at the same time, jump out and do and they were very Sony was very kind to me and, and would let me sort of play with the scripts in any way I, I wanted. And I became a guy who could make movies about killers, um, whether it was the BTK or Craigslist or Lizzie Borden or any of those things. So it was, uh, it, it, it certainly was a strange, strange, uh, it's been a, it's been a strange ride for sure. Yeah, I want to ask you a little bit about Lizzie Borden because now that was originally a TV movie, but then got turned into a series. Is that right? Yeah, I wrote a TV movie that I was supposed to direct, 
And then I had another job, so I wasn't available to direct it. And then they made it. And then they called me up and said, someone came in and pitched us a series. You want to be involved? And I said, that's insane. doesn't make any sense to make a series out of it. Um, but then they pitched it to me, and it was so crazy that I found it fascinating. I said, sure. Um, and it was actually... I thought what they were trying to do was, was fun. I wasn't involved with the writing of it, but I said I would come and direct the first couple episodes and just give them an indication of the, the visual style that I would want to take it in. And so that's what we did. Uh, it was pretty crazy. You worked on a lot of covert affairs. Is that where you met Pierre Bo? Uh-huh. Yeah, we we I was a I was a executive producer and a director on the show. Um we did it together for 4 years and fell in love and changed my life and um I got I got zero complaints now. <laughs> um yeah, life is life is <laughs> life is pretty good. First time I ever saw her in anything was uh Knuckleface Jones. Wow. I don't even know what that is. Oh, you're um, going to have to ask her now. I was just about to say, but I'm about to. We're 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 in different cities right now, but uh, I will be hanging up with you and calling her and saying, "What the hell is Knuckleface Jones?" I loved it. I saw it at a, a small uh, psychotronic film festival years and years ago. Wow. Yeah. Wow. She's yeah. She's she's a. Uh, I'm sure she was great because she always is. But she's a very, very special person. So you're out of movie jail now. I'm out of movie jail. I've actually been talking. I've been, coincidentally, I've been talking to Sly about doing something together and being very careful, for lack of any other way to describe it. I'm having a blast doing television, so I don't feel like I... And and I feel like there's work in television that is super special right now. So I'm, I'm taking my time. And, and, and hopefully I got, you know, a few more movies in me. Um, but I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not rushing to make one just to make one. I'm hoping I'm officially out. I haven't gone knocking on any of the usual suspects doors, but, um, TV has been very good to me. And, and now I'm, you know, hopefully, hopefully soon enough, I'll be, I'll be back shooting something big, although everybody's got big enough TVs, they're probably as big as half the movie theaters. Yeah, I want to just posit something, and you can tell me if I'm full of shit or not. (laughs) So, you having not a good experience with the box office receipts of Get Carter kind of throws you into movie jail. You end up doing a work release program with television. Do you feel like maybe you were a little bit of ahead of the curve when it came to TV and you got in on some of the really great shows like The Shield and, you know, eventually like Sons of Anarchy and these kind of things before, you know, Sons of Anarchy, I would consider part of this new wave of television. But The Shield, I think, was kind of that groundbreaking thing where, you know, The Shield, The Wire, these kind of shows where it was really pushing TV to the new medium. Do you think that maybe the failure of Get Carter actually kind of helped you get ahead of the curb a little bit? I think for sure. I mean, I, th- I think I was making, you know, I, I saw I was I was making Boogeyman 
um, when I saw I was out of the country and uh, I was in New Zealand and making Boogeyman and I and I saw the pilot to the shield and was like, this is a thousand times more important than any any of the movies I'm looking at. So and and I called them and said, uh, when I get home, I just want to meet you guys. I, I don't, I don't know if you can, I'm not asking you to hire me. I've never done a TV show. I think now I have friends who, you know, who are big movie, uh, big filmmakers who say the same thing to me that, that I did in a weird way, accidentally, not, not of my own choosing. Um, I ended up getting into television, uh, before everybody wanted to be in television. And now, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough to be, you know, taken, taken in by Sean Ryan and Scott Brazil and sort of taught how to, how to make, how to make stuff that with your, with your heart. And, uh, and it, it, as much as it, you know, as much as it introduced me to, special television it also you know it woke me up again which was really needed you know it was it's it's it was easy to get dark and go all right so that's over um i'll just i'll just try to find a way to make a living now uh, i never wa- i never wanted to do this i never wanted to get into this business to make a living i wanted to get into this movie because it was how i lived you know, I wanted, uh, so it was, it was, it was, I feel very, very, very fortunate to have met guys like that. And the, the cast of the shield are my, are my best friends. Um, Walton married us, uh, uh, you know, so it's, uh, they were a, are a special group of guys and they, in a lot of ways, I feel, you know, I feel indebted to, everyone involved in that, in that show specifically for sort of waking me back up and, and letting me go do shit you love with people you love. Was it on Boogeyman where you renounced your U.S. citizenship? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, changed my accent, started, started eating chip buddies and everything. Yeah, that was when I, that was when I got kicked out of the country. Wow, they yeah. really didn't like it, Carter, did they? Yeah, exactly. Uh, that was that was the beginning of my New Zealand citizenship. Hey, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been terrific. Yeah, my pleasure, man. It was really fun. All right, we're back, and we're talking about Get Carter in a marathon session this week. So I just wanted to get your guys' final thoughts on these films. Now, uh, I think I know the answer, but I just want to make sure that you guys have a platform as far as what do you recommend, what would you say to skip, what are your final thoughts on this. Eric, I will go ahead and start with you, sir. 
I think the quality of the movies diminishes with each release. I think you can um, definitely watch Get Carter. Obviously, that's the classic. Hitman, a very enjoyable movie. Give it a shot. The one to probably skip is, I think, the Stallone one. Uh, there's really kind of no redeemable quality in it whatsoever, unless you're a Stallone fan and you're going to watch it anyway. And I have to concur. Uh, the Dead Carter with Michael Caine is a real in-the-gut kind of movie, the kind of thing that you, you watch and you wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, wow, that was something. Uh, Hitman is fun. It's enjoyable, but it doesn't have the same impact. And... Uh, Stallone version really is uh, the kind of movie that you watch, and and five years later you're you're saying, yeah, yeah, I I know I saw that movie, but I don't remember anything about it. Ouch. I I can see that though. I still have a soft spot for Get Carter two thousand. I don't know if it's just that kind of cheese factor when it comes to some of Stallone's films. I mean, it's no Copland, it's no Oscar. It's no Cobra, but it's uh, it, it still works for me. It's definitely better than some of his other things like, uh, oh, God, what was that one where he's stuck in the sewer system? I mean, there was some bad films out there that he had. Um, but it's a nice time capsule of 2000, um, you know, having the early version of the Internet in there, uh, having a, a pretty good techno soundtrack. Though I do have to say there's one part that really kind of uh, distracts me when it comes to the soundtrack where we have uh, a song being played that starts with a sample or something. And uh, it's almost like somebody is uh, standing off to the side with a megaphone over the scene of these guys like fighting in the street. And I'm like, what is going on here? And then I realize, Oh, okay. It's part of the song. I wouldn't have necessarily left that part of the song uh, because it's a little distracting, but, you know, just uh, it's a decision that was made that I don't necessarily agree with. So let's go ahead. We're going to take one last break. We're going to play a trailer for next week's show. A martial arts champion in search of the glow. Master, I need more time. I am no longer your master. A rock and roll star on the rise. I know what it's like to lose precious things. A madman. Shogun of Harlem. A maniac. You're going to put my video on your show, aren't you? The answer is no. And the glamour, the power, and the sound of Motown. I don't want you to kill anybody. Are you out of your mind? The Leroy Green I'm looking for is a little pop thinks he's a kung fu master. I am no master. You sure look like a master to me. This is Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. To the beat of the rhythm of the night And dance until the morning light Forget about the worries on your mind You can leave it all behind It's about the power the glow. Timok. Vanity. Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. Directed by Michael Schultz. A Motown Productions picture from TriStar. That's right. Next week we are back with a discussion of Michael Schultz's The Last Dragon. What a great way to kick off 2016. In the meantime, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, 
Maitland McDonough and Eric Saldivar. Now, Eric, I know you're a big fan of Italian films, also being one of the co-producers of the Eurocrime documentary. Now, can you tell me a little bit about this modern-day spaghetti western, The Scarlet Worm, that you worked on? Uh, the Scarlet Worm was a film that uh, six fellows and myself were in the summer of 2010. We decided to culminate in uh, a, little, a little desert town called Temecula, California. And for very little amount of money, $7,500, that I was able to procure two-thirds of um, from a friend, uh, we just made this uh, this Western in the style of... Uh, it, got, it got pegged as a spaghetti clown, but it certainly I don't think it is that at all. I think it's more closer to American revisionist movies, uh, uh, Westerns of the 70s. And what are you working on these days? I just got off my writing duties for the official Django sequel uh, with Franco Nero, worked on that for several years, and um, moving moving on away from that, we, uh, somebody else took over, uh, John Sales has taken over writing uh, for the project, and at the moment I'm just kind of uh, bouncing around here and there, working on this, uh, this book right now for um, Spectacular Optical, this Canadian publisher, uh, about Yuletide Terror. As the title tells you, it's uh, Christmas horror movies, which one of them I will be actually uh, writing about Black Rainbow, which is uh, one of Mike Hodges' films from the early 90s or late 80s, if I'm not mistaken. Very cool. And Maitland, what have you been up to since we last spoke, which I believe was on our Colossus episode? I believe that was. I am continuing to republish vintage gay novels from the 70s. Right now, I'm working on one called Three Ring Circus, which is a backstage at the circus story. It is really, really kind of fantastic and fun. And I've also done uh, two thrillers, Man Eater and Night of the Sadist, and two vampire novels, Gay Vampire and Vampire's Kiss. They're all available on Amazon. Very cool. Well, we will be sure to link over to that from our website, projection-booth.com. Thank you guys for coming on this episode, and thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you for making this a great 2015. This is the last episode of 2015. It's been a heck of a year, and it's been a heck of a December. Uh, I just posted a few things of interest over at our website, projection-boot.com. We've got a year-end music mix where we kind of took all of the uh, greatest hits from the years, uh, the songs that we close out episodes with. Uh, that has been put up. Uh, we also have a uh, list of the most and least listen to episodes uh, which is interesting to see what people are downloading and not downloading if you haven't downloaded uh, some of those least listened to episodes I would encourage you to please do so they're good pieces Marcus they definitely have some validity to them there are a lot of great films that we talk about things that I would hope that people would definitely check out uh, we also put a bonus interview up uh, actually a couple bonus interviews up one with the character actor Anthony James who is best known for, for playing a lot of uh, incredible villains, and you'll find out that he's actually one of the nicest guys that I've ever had the pleasure of speaking to, and an uh, interview with Bruce Dern, where we spoke to him about his work on Nebraska and The Hateful Eight. figured that was appropriate for the Hateful Eight release. And uh, we also just 
dropped a uh, a little bonus that is related to this episode. We've got the Get Carter music mix, where I uh, took a whole lot of uh, different versions of the Get Carter theme and put those together for your ears' pleasure. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being uh, faithful uh faithful participants in the projection booth experience. So once again, I'm going to encourage folks to go over to our website, projection-booth.com. Stop by, leave us some feedback, send us some love via our Patreon or rate and review us over at our, uh, iTunes rate and review us over at our iTunes. Uh, when I last checked, I think we had 152 reviews. I I'm hoping that we have more than 152 listeners, uh, but that might not be the case. So if you listen through iTunes, go ahead, rate and review us. It's definitely a great way to help us take over the world.
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. You don't care a stuff, do you? Bloody hurt me. You're lucky. They kill as well. What's that gun doing in your room? Suppose I phoned the police and told them there's a bloke staying in my hotel who's planning to shoot somebody. You wouldn't do that. How do you know I wouldn't? Because I know you wear purple underwear.